Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston, and today we are talking about the seminal 1970 album from Black Sabbath, Paranoid, their second album. Um, and we will get into that um, a lot <laughs> later. I'm excited for this episode. <laughs> I'm excited for a lot of reasons, but oh, yes, yeah, I yeah, yeah. Oh, me, me too. I mean, anybody who's been listening to the show for a while knows that Sabbath are one of my favorite classic metal bands um you know the early sabbath stuff was so important and seminal to me um so yeah i'm really looking forward to this but before we do uh the usual let's go through um what's happened since last episode so uh Holy first moly, of all, a lot a lot indeed yeah <laughs> yeah uh including threat of nuclear annihilation so enjoy it kids this might be your last episode good uh, lord i know this is probably a, a fitting <laughs> album because there's a mm. th- this album could usher apocalyptic. in the apocalypse for sure <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely uh we do have one new patron since the last episode and that is brian kuzmierski uh i hope i pronounced that correctly uh thank you brian um and uh of course as we mentioned in the last episode we crossed our hundred dollar pledge level per episode uh we actually dipped back down below it for a brief period when a couple of people quit but then we went back up over it again and whatever the point being that um as i mentioned last episode that meant that uh, we were going to release the full Thrash It Out theme song. Uh, the snag was, of course, that it wasn't quite finished. However, it is now finished. Uh, I literally finished it two days before we're recording this. Um, and uh, if you are a patron, check your email, because you will have an email from like through, via Patreon uh, from me giving you a link to where you can download it. It's a private, you know, passworded thing. Um, so it's only for patrons and you can go and grab it, download it and listen to uh, a bunch of us all thrashing around. So there's me on vocals. We have uh, Don Cardenas and Greg Wilson on guitars, both rhythm and lead for both guys, uh, and Jack Chambers on bass. And uh, and then, you know, me programming drum machines <laughs> for the drums. And um, and all three of those uh, guys are longtime listeners of the show and also uh, patrons. So uh, it's you know kind of fitting in a way. And the result is... I'm pretty proud of it. It's a pretty fucking heavy track. (laughs) It totally is. And I think it completely captures the spirit of this show. And I was like grinning like an idiot the 15 times in a row that I listened to it because to have people that listen to the show actually have contributed to that and have it all come together like that. I mean, kudos to you, man, for the production side of it, because it really came together well. And it just, that just makes me so happy. Like that is such in the spirit of what, this show is all about and now that becomes part of its legacy and so i was just like super psyched. those guys all sound amazing you sounded amazing like it just was great yeah it's and it was a lot of fun to do you know yes it took a while to do uh, we joked who was it i think it was don uh in the sort of yeah we did it at an email thread between us uh when i was finishing the production and don i think joked and said oh this sounds great let's do an ep <laughs> And I was like, at the current rate, we'll have it out by like 2029. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you yeah, could, it, like, I, I can see how after listening to the final product, though, like everybody involved would be like, oh, yeah, we should do more of this. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, as I say, if you are a patron, check your email. Um, and there will be a download link for that. If you are not yet a patron, of course, you can become a patron and you will uh, be able to access it as well. Uh, and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash thrash it out uh, to make your pledge. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, people will get a taste of that song in 
our intro to the podcast now, correct? They have already had one. Yes, that was yep. the, that was the final thing I was going to mention. Was that uh, keen eared listeners will have noticed that the intro theme to today's show does not sound the same as the one you've heard for the previous twenty episodes or whatever it's been uh, of the show, and that's because that is using all the instrumentation and recording of the full theme song, and that will be now our theme music going forward it's obviously a very condensed heavily edited <laughs> shortened version but that is that's the sound you can expect from the uh from the theme song so i think you'll agree it's a pretty crushing sound as i say we're all very proud of it not only that but there is a little twist to the original riff that i really liked the first time i heard it i was like oh all right nice oh uh, uh, really yeah, like it just uh, maybe in just the way that it sounds now it, through the production, but it sounded a little bit uh, a little bit of flair to me that I hadn't heard before. Oh, okay, that yeah. might be Don's playing. Don, uh, I believe, starts, I love Don's playing. Yeah, it's, it's his guitar that starts the uh, what's it off, and then Greg's guitar joins in uh, on the second bar. So yeah, maybe it's just the way Don plays it. Everybody w- did a great job on that. It sounds awesome. I did. Uh, and, right, so speaking of the community, um, uh, there's been a f- quite a bit happening on the Facebook page since oh, the last tons. episode. <laughs> uh, so one of much. those things that I wanted to mention, because this ended up being such a long thread, was when I said last episode that my theme for this volume is going to be uh, albums that changed the face of metal, um, immediately this massive thread sprang up on the Facebook page about how clearly Iron Maiden have to be, you know, in that group, which I would not argue with at all. But the, the then there's this huge debate about which Iron Maiden album it should be because they're so prolific. They have so many albums. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so many of their older albums are regarded as classics as well. It was, uh, it became a huge, a huge thread. Yeah, I, I, I liken that discussion to if you when you have a discussion about Metallica, right? Where you just have this, and and even though Metallica have not as many albums, but it's that whole thing of like, even in my discussion of it, like what album means the most to me and why I'm connected to particular albums of Iron Maiden. Like I, I think that that's a band that people have a very strong connection to particular albums of, and it all depends sort of when you came into them and when you, you know, what was the first record you bought of theirs and that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, that's an awesome debate. But again, what I love about those debates is like it's all it's all just great discussion back and forth of like why this album was important to me or why it was important to you or which songs on this album clicked with me or what I think is iconic versus what you think is iconic and it's uh it's a great discussion so yeah with, it should shock no one that we also believe that Maiden is absolutely part of that discussion yeah. and <laughs> you know there will be more discussion of Iron Maiden in the future for sure yeah, I mean, but you're right. Maiden is like Metallica uh, and a few other bands. They are, yes, one of those bands that wherever you start listening to them is inevitably going to influence which of their albums you regard as their best or their classic or your favorite or whatever. Um, I mean, Black Sabbath too, right? I mean, the yeah. band we're talking about today, the same thing, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little while. But they, I absolutely think that there there are certain bands that will forever be cemented in the foundation of what we consider to be heavy metal and any of those bands are going to have different entry points for people and and are going to affect that person's personal view of metal in a certain way. And so it's always fascinating to me to hear like what those points are for people, where except, they came in, what are those bands? Except for Motorhead, perhaps. 
It doesn't Motorhead, kind of doesn't Motorhead matter. is just a force of nature. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's the great thing about you know what. And and going back and looking at it, Motorhead, much like ACDC, were probably like, you know what, we just want to have it be wherever you come in. You'll Whenever get the same you band. It doesn't matter. You're <laughs> yeah. gonna, you don't have to figure out like where the sound came from or when we changed or when it, we're just, you come in whenever you want and we'll be here doing our thing. Yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh uh, yeah. It's uh, yeah, but it's like Doctor Who, you know, whichever one you grew up on, that's your doctor. Uh, and I think it is the same for, for Maiden sure. and Metallica albums. Yeah. Um, what surprised me just briefly finishing off the Maiden thing was that, uh, and this is again, another comparison to Metallica. I've mentioned this before. Uh, older listeners will remember when Load came out, that was the first studio album after the Black album. It was, it's fair to say, absolutely panned by most old school Metallica fans. Uh, uh-huh. People who had found Metallica through the Black album, most of them liked it, but people who had been fans since the days of stuff like Lightning and Master of Puppets, especially, uh, generally were really down on Load. Um, you know, and so there was this perception that it was a bad album, it was an unpopular album, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward, not even quite 10 years, about eight years, and Load topped, topped the uh, a reader's poll in Metal Hammer of best Metallica albums ever. Uh, and that's because their readership skewed young. Um, that's exactly what I was just going to say, right? Because that generation of metal fans now... That's who Metallica is to them. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. And so, and the reason I mentioned that is because when we were having this discussion about Maiden, I mentioned that one of my favourite Maiden albums is Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. And I kind of, normally when I tell people that, I do so with a certain amount of trepidation because, again, at the time, Seventh Son was regarded by a lot of old school Maiden fans as kind of a betrayal because it was... Well, it was the first album to feature proper synthesizers, like full-on keyboard synthesizers, which, you know, in the early days of metal was considered some kind of heresy. Um, A lot of the songs were a little bit poppy. You know, they had a bit more melody than perhaps some of the earlier songs, and it was just generally regarded as a a sellout album, almost, by a lot of really hardcore old-school Maiden fans. But, of course, that was 30 years ago, (laughs) and I forget that sometimes. And And it's one of those time heals all wounds things where you can go back and look at it for what it is but yeah that album i think was definitely a further evolution of what started like with somewhere in time right and it so, was yeah but you yeah, mention it then, now and a lot of like in modern maiden fans will go yeah that's a classic album why right. why, why would you be embarrassed about that <laughs> well it was to say it's funny you mentioned that because i was looking back at some of the feedback on somewhere in time and when somewhere in time came out like there, for years when i would say that was my favorite maiden album people would give me a look at like really that's your favorite maiden album and i look back now and i see nothing but positive uh, you know, discussion of it, which that was not my perception back then, was that yeah. that was considered to be one of their classic albums. So it is interesting to kind of go back and look at what history has kind of given as perspective on a particular album. Absolutely. Well, and that's something else that we will get into discussing uh, Sabbath and Paranoid uh, later in this episode. Um, uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention before I ask you uh, to sort of go through uh, the Facebook page again was we had an email from uh, a listener called uh, Ricky Danger, made up nice. name. Um, and name. it was it was both great and 
like massively depressing to me. Um, <laughs> and before before you worry, Ricky, I'll explain why. I'll I'll just read a bit of it. He said, uh, "Hey, Brian and Anthony, I'm a young metalhead who's a big fan of your podcast. Now, notice that I'm a bit I'm a young metalhead who's a big fan of your podcast. Quote: It really helped me when I was first getting into metal, and I still love to listen to your interesting discussions and arguments. Now." There is a bit more to the email than that. I won't bother reading it. That's brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Yep. But my God, it made me feel so old. We haven't even been doing this show for two years. <laughs> no, and but it, like to, in, to me, it is a bittersweet sort of thing because one, you're like, oh man, we are really super old. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, this is doing what I hoped that it would do, which is especially if we do have younger listeners who are coming in now, like n- not letting them forget sort of where a lot of this stuff came from. And this obviously is a great episode for that. So it's encouraging and depressing at the same time. Right. (laughs) Don't worry. I felt the same thing when I read it. I'm like, oh, young metal. But then again, I have a son who's going on 11 and he is a a young metalhead. And right, so, right. you know, this is all new to him. Yeah. 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 And yeah. So Ricky, please don't, don't worry. I'm not really offended. Uh, it was just depressing because <laughs> we're so old. Um, but awesome. Uh, and Hey, get your friends to listen too. Absolutely. And, uh, the other thing I was going to say was he also recommended, uh, several albums for us to listen uh-huh. to literally none of which I have ever heard of. So I'm going to, dude, <laughs> I'm going to keep that list and check them all out. So thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it was funny because I was going to read that email too, but let's just quickly look at the uh, Facebook page and then remind me to mention the Anthrax concert that I just went to. Oh, yeah. Uh, so uh, a couple quick uh, pieces of feedback from the Judas Priest episode, which we got tons of feedback on. So uh, Daniel said, story time. Back in 2004, when they decided to reunite with Halford, I was just starting to get into metal. I had heard Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell on the radio. Yes, I do prefer the short but great Dio era. More on that later. Uh, he said, but I hadn't <laughs> found the album. The magical key was when I saw a new segment about Judas Priest. It was the drums that did it. The segment started with those rapid-fire drums, and I was turned on the spot into a metalhead. The transformative power of the drum intro, <laughs> uh, which I thought was pretty awesome. Uh, Edgar said, one of my favorite albums ever. Uh, Powell said, very grateful to you, gents, for dropping this right before I hop on a nine-hour flight. We, you know, we we try to do. We try to to serve everybody's needs. Uh, Don said, based on Brian's reaction, this was the biggest theme of the feedback, by the way, was the, holy crap, did Brian just say that he's not a big fan of Black Sabbath? So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don said, based on Brian's reaction to the homework, I don't think we could be friends anymore. And that was a pretty consistent theme throughout the feedback thread. Uh, Andy said, the episode is cracking me up. In general, I find myself aligned much more with Anthony's taste than Brian's, though Brian's hit rate improved somewhat in volume two. Uh, but that said, I think Brian is a bit more open-minded than Anthony. You guys are disagreeing so hard on this one. I, I Thinking back to that episode, like I guess we did... But I didn't feel like we were that. I think we, I think we disagreed more than we have done on a lot of albums. Um, sure, but we didn't. But it was disagreeing because you know I'm as I made such a point of saying in the episode because I am I have such massive respect for Priest, even though I'm not a huge fan of their music. You know, I think maybe that tempered. Maybe it didn't yeah. feel like we were arguing you know hard but th- we did yeah. disagree quite a bit yeah about the actual songs <laughs> so brian said my favorite episodes are when you guys disagree about an album when i don't have a strong opinion about it uh such as painkiller i was cracking up the whole time and then brian said he doesn't like black sabbath and now my whole worldview has slipped from its moorings <laughs> <laughs> uh phil said i honestly have never been a huge priest fan love some songs here and there but 
have only owned two of their albums, and this wasn't one of them. I remember this album, but hearing it again today, I have to say it didn't age well for me. So that's interesting. Um, let's see. Yeah, uh, I wonder what the albums he did own were, because I would have thought if you only own a couple of albums, I would expect have expected Painkiller to be one of them, yeah. Uh, well, I suppose see, one of them's got to be British Steel, but I'm going to guess. I would think so, but you know, the thing about Priest from, and I don't know if I mentioned this on the show, but uh, I'm sure I did. Sad Wings of Destiny was almost my pick for that episode because right. it's so freaking good, but it is such a different album from, it's it's light years away from yeah. Painkiller yeah, yeah. in terms of, of the sound. But uh, the more that I go back and dig into the history of Judas Priest, the more that I like their earlier stuff even more. Um, although, obviously, I love the harder, heavier, faster stuff, but man, their early stuff is so good. Uh, Greg said, being a little older, I first got into Priest back in 79 after they appeared on Top of the Pops playing Take on the World. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it helped that shortly afterwards, their live album Unleashed in the East came out. I played that album to death, and a lot of my friends did, too. Uh, Les Banks drumming on it is brilliant, so imagine my disappointment when the next release was Living After Midnight plotting drums and much slower priests trying and succeeding to get on the chart. And I think that's a common criticism that gets thrown at priests is that some of their, you know, some of their stuff is very radio rock. Um, but I, to me, it's all part of the tapestry. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't, yeah, that, that well, doesn't take away from them because I, again, being a hair metal fan and sort of a, that's exactly what, that music was designed to do and that's what i grew up on so that stuff never took away from priest it was almost like i liked that stuff and then there was other stuff that was darker and harder and heavier and i was like oh that's even better like right, it wasn't well, like good and bad i mean talking about maiden you know and again i'm not sure if this was the case in the u.s but in the uk one of the reasons that maiden are such a sort of um uh, part of the fabric, part of the musical culture of the UK and so well-known is because they had quite a few genuine hit singles uh, that were, and, you know, and they performed on Top of the Pops again. Uh, you know, they were an actual successful singles band. Um, and frankly, along with Motorhead, probably the only, like, genuine proper heavy metal band who ever charted in the early 80s, I would say. Um, yeah. I can't think of any in the UK. I can't think of any other like, you know, band that we would think of as a real, not just a hard rock band, but a real heavy metal band um, that had actual hit singles in the UK in the early 80s besides those two bands. And that's one of the reasons why they are such um, touchstones within music culture in the UK. The other thing, too, for me with Priest is they're one... And I know we've talked about the whole live albums thing before, and there's n there's a lot of bands that don't sound good live. Priest, especially older Priest, sounds amazing live. And uh, there's a YouTube video out there. I want to say it's from the, like the 1982 Us Festival. Um, that's simply amazing of Judas Priest. But that so their live stuff is also stuff that I was very interested in and held up so well for me because for a lot of bands they just don't translate well live. Priest is one of those bands that absolutely does. Right, yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Kenneth said, I never had much time for Priest. The only album I had was British Steel, and it wasn't for me at all. So I was looking forward to, di to digging into this album and giving them another chance. Uh, but it never clicked with me. There's just some music I like on it, but the cheese level was just too much, which I think was one of your issues with it too, Anthony. 
he said, if you had a metal cliche drinking game with this album, <laughs> you'd be really messed up by the end, if not dead. <laughs> yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it wasn't just, I mean, yes, there was a fair amount of cheese on the album, but, you know, as I said in the episode, it wasn't just the cheese, it was that it felt like an album from four years previous you know as, sure. as i said at the time if that album had been released in 1985 i would probably have more fondness for it or at least right. be sort of more tolerant of it if you like um because it just it sounded like they hadn't progressed at all and as i've said before on the show i like bands that progress with the exception of motorhead but <laughs> apart from that you know i like bands generally that do whose sound evolves and who move with the times and it felt like in the late 80s that priest just weren't doing that uh, Andy said, I like this record just fine, but if I want to listen to Priest, I most often reach for Sin After Sin, Stained Class, or Hellbent for Leather. Uh, Lenny pulled out a gif of Snape being horrified at my statement of not liking Black Sabbath, <laughs> which when I first saw that, I was seriously in tears. I was crying. I was laughing so hard. Um, th- this was one of my favorite threads ever to go through. Uh, Dijon said, I agree with most of Anthony's thoughts about the record, but after listening to it over and over, I find myself singing along with One Shot at Glory and even humming touch of evil he said tina turner wow. could nail that song so it's it's converting <laughs> it, it's converting some of the uh some of the people that's that's listened to uh tony said lots to talk about with this episode which is bizarre as i had no interest in judas priest at all it proves once again that this podcast is an absolute must listen even if the album being discussed doesn't interest you or is in a style that doesn't appeal oh, in bless. fact it may even be better when that's the case as you're not constantly worrying about what someone thinks about something that you're actually interested in. And I find that... That's a fair point. That's a great point. Because, yeah, when you're not personally attached... Because, like, when we talk about Megadeth, for example, you know, or clearly the reaction we get from some Metallica fans when we talk about Metallica, right? When it's your band and it's your... You're so attached to it, it is... It's tough to not think about, well, why don't they like that? Or, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. (laughs) Uh, let's see. Uh, Andy said, one part of the discussion I found fascinating is Rob Halford's evolving role as a gay icon. It's easy to look back with your 2017 eyes and think his orientation is super obvious, but I know that wasn't the case in 78, 79, etc. Uh, interesting how much of Halford's butch leather bike Tom uh, of Finland look reads as metal now. And, you know, that's a fair point because obviously back then it's easy, like he said, to look back now and say, yeah, it's, that's not super surprising. but at the time, oh, no, I think at the time for a lot of people, yeah. it really was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, as has been mentioned, and I think somebody mentioned in that thread, it was kind of an open secret around, you know, in metal circles. Sure, like within um, the community, yeah. Right. But it was also, you know, it was a time when the late 70s and 80s were still a time when, frankly, you know, being outed as gay could be a career killer. Uh, and I think it's actually quite commendable that it was an open secret within the community, and yet nobody outed him because they knew that it would basically kill Priest's career. You know, that would pretty much, at that time of history, that would be the end of that band. Uh, Much the same with Freddie Mercury and Queen. You know, it's it's, it's come out, no pun intended, uh, in, you know, years since that, you know, lots of people knew that Freddie Mercury was, at the very least, bisexual, uh, if not, you know, very heavily trending towards out-and-out homosexual. Um, And... But nobody said anything because it was unthinkable at the time that you could say that and not basically kill the band's career. So, you know, I think that speaks to the the strength of the community. I mean, it's a terrible thing 
that people would have to make that consideration and would have to feel like, oh, I can't say anything because, uh, you know, I have to lie basically for the sake of this person's career. That's a terrible state of affairs. Nevertheless, that being the state of affairs, I think it's really commendable that the community did keep that sort of thing a secret for so long. And even, and it's a reminder too, I think, of even you know, back in the day of record deals and mega bands and stuff like that, how fragile it all was, right? How, yeah. how easily you could lose your spot, you know, um, oh, yeah. or, or, you know, get sort of cut off at the knees before you got to that spot. And so, yeah, it is, uh, for the bands that did achieve a reasonable level of popularity and a reasonable level of success, like that's, it's just a reminder of how kind of fragile that stuff is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see what else. So Don said, uh, while a great episode, I am one who falls into the camp of respecting the heck the hell out of priests, but not really being all that into them. I could fit all the songs I dig of theirs into one disc. Same with Maiden. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, he said, <laughs> that said, I do know the title track pretty re- well as it's consistently blasted loudly and proudly by my father-in-law. So props to Don's father-in-law <laughs> for <laughs> carrying the metal flag I, with Priest. I've met, I've met Don. Bless him. He's quite young <laughs> compared to us anyway. <laughs> Uh, Auntie said, don't worry, Anthony, uh, forcing people to pronounce Finnish names is always hilarious. Yes, <laughs> I do my I best. I feel like you <laughs> do a much better job than I do of pronouncing names. Uh, and Scott said, good one as always. Thanks, guys. Not too much into Painkiller. Got my start with Priest with Killing Machine, Stained Class, British Deal, and Defenders. Loved Unleashed in the East, too. I don't mind the switch to Ripper too much, to be honest. I always thought his voice was really good, and I enjoyed seeing him live with them. That uh, reminded me, I went back and listened to Jugulator right and, after we recorded this. And I listened to it for the first time, and I was going to talk about that, so go on. Uh, and I did not give Ripper enough credit when we talked about it in the Priest episode, because his overall range was much better than I remembered it being, and because I remembered him being very much in the painkiller vein of Halford's voice. Right. The high, super high scream, and believe there's plenty of that there on Jugulator. But... He shows a lot more range than I remembered, and when I went back and listened to it, man, that stuff is heavy, and he shows a, a lot of range there. And so, yeah, those. But I enjoyed those albums, anyways. It wasn't like I didn't like them. But when I went back and listened to Jugulator, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah this I, is more impressive than I remember it being. I had never, as I mentioned in the episode, I had never listened to Jugulator, so I grabbed a copy and uh, gave it a listen, and it's man. I mean, yeah, Ripper. Great vocalist, clearly, you know, as you say, great range. And once again, you know, as with all priests, like the musicianship and everything is superb. Um, and it did at least sound like a modern album, but it felt, how can I put it? It felt like Ripper was the only one whose heart was in it, uh, in terms of them suddenly sounding like a modern for 1991 or whenever it was metal band uh-huh. uh like you know yes the songs were all kind of you know a bit pantera ish and you know they down tuned massively and all that sort of stuff so the sound was was there and made them sound more like a modern band but the songwriting and the songwriting had changed but i don't know it just felt like there wasn't any conviction behind it you can kind of imagine kk and and glenn like you know just kind of playing along going like really really while they're playing <laughs> This is what right. the kids are into, really. This is what everybody's into. Although <laughs> yeah. I think when you when you go and I haven't gone back and read interviews of that time, but if I remember correctly, like they they were pretty 
legitimately jazzed at the time to have him come in because i think when oh, i think you, it's just a shot of energy isn't it yeah absolutely you know they they had this guy come in who is just like dying to make music with them and so uh yeah that, like i think demonizer is that the name of the song one of the songs on the album but like that's a song that con- consistently sort of rings in my head um I enjoyed it when I went back and listened to it again, for sure. Yeah, it wasn't bad by any means. Uh, you know, again, much like Painkiller, not a bad album at all. Right. Uh, you know, I sort of, I don't mind listening to that stuff. And Jugulator was the same. I, you know, I would happily listen to it again. But it didn't, yeah, it didn't grab me. There was nothing on it that made me go like, oh, wow, you know, what a classic track. Yeah, so amazing feedback. I mean, all over the place on that thread on the facebook page and as you said there's been tons of other discussions like there must be at least two or three bands a week that someone suggests on our facebook page that i'm like holy crap i i've heard of them but i haven't really delved into them or i've never even heard of that band and i go and listen to it and just amazing recommendations i actually have a long car ride ahead of me after we record today and i have the new havoc album to listen to the new kxm album to listen to and the new body count album to listen to so i have uh and the new body count is amazing. I've already heard it a couple times. Oh, I haven't um, heard the whole album. I've only no, heard dude, the, the single. There's so much. You know what's funny about that? Just one quick note on body count is that I was, I think it's on this album. There's a there's a spoken piece where Ice T is talking about the influences on them, and he lists Black Sabbath, Slayer, and Suicidal Tendencies. And up until that point, as I was listening to him, I'm like, man, this is so old school suicidal. It's it's so yeah. much like now I want a suicidal tendencies and body count world tour, the two bands together, because I think that would be a dream tour. But uh yeah, so I'm excited about some stuff I got to listen to uh after surely, we go ahead. Surely body count and suicidal tendencies must have played they together have, before. Right? They must have. That seems yeah. like such an obvious pairing, yeah. It may may have been like at a festival, but I don't know that they've actually done a tour together. But that makes that just makes too much sense now that yeah. I you know the, the more <laughs> thought I put into it. So, uh, but speaking of tours, I just saw Anthrax on the fourth of April at the Oakdale in Wallingford, Connecticut, and man, I had not seen Joey Belladonna with Anthrax since the Clash of the Titans tour which was 1991. Right, right. Pre-John Bush era, yeah. Yep, on my 16th birthday. Now, I've seen Anthrax several times, but I've seen them mostly with John Bush. Uh, But I did see them on the Persistence of Time album, which was the Clash of the Titans tour back in 91. Uh, In fact, on my 17th birthday, I think it was, that I saw them on. And they were amazing back then. But over the years, a lot of the performances I've seen of Joey live have not impressed me. And I was worried going into this show as to whether or not he was going to sound good or not he freaking blew me away like anthrax came out and just got this crowd completely fired up he sounded amazing from top to bottom singing the new stuff singing the old stuff uh getting fired up with the crowd getting the mosh pit going just interacting with the fans and stuff like that this was like vintage great anthrax and i was so happy i took my son to to see them with me and they just could not have put on a better show. Like, I was so happy and impressed. Like, if that's the last time I ever see Anthrax, they nailed it. They wow. they just cemented themselves in my memory. And I was blown away at how good Joey sounded and sounded throughout the entire set. Just fantastic. So if you get a chance to see them on this tour with Killswitch Engage, uh, or, or even by themselves, take it. Because they are in top form right now. Was that the first time that uh, your son had seen them? 
It was, yeah. My my goal sort of over the past year or so has been to try to get him to come with me to see bands that were big for me growing up. So he's seen, you know, he's seen Megadeth, he's seen Suicidal, he's seen Queensryche, he's seen Striper with me, he's and now he's seen Anthrax with me. And he'll be with me for the Metallica concert in May. And I have tickets to see Maiden in July, and he'll be with me for that as well. So uh, he'll have seen three of the big four by this summer, and the only reason I'm not taking him to Slayer is because that's a little bit too much for him, you know, at uh, at 11. And uh, being a Catholic school kid, it's just the imagery and the and the lyrics and everything else. At least right now, I I just feel like I can't bring him to that show yet, but uh, I will get him to see Slayer at some point. Right. How will Killswitch engage? Because they've got their old singer back now that Howard Jones left. Is that right? Sadly, I do not know because we did not stay for Killswitch Engage uh, because it was a school night. And so the decision was, if I take him, I have to get him back home by a decent hour. Right, right. And so Anthrax got over around 10, 15 at night. And so we had to head out. So Killswitch would probably be coming on closer to 11. Yeah. And it just wasn't doable. So um, I believe I've seen Killswitch before on OzFest because I'm, I'm pretty sure they played OzFest before. But um, they're coming back around. That would have been with Howard Jones singing, I assume. Yeah, and they're coming back around. I think without Anthrax, um, because I just saw some tour dates in my email box for them, and so uh, hopefully I'll get to catch them. Because yeah, I did not get to stay for them, but I did see uh, the Devil Wears Prada for the second time. I saw them on the Mayhem Festival a couple years ago with Slayer, and they were good. They they have a very like at the drive-in slash Sparta kind of feel to them for me that's that's how they kind of click with me right um lots of energy really good set and then uh jamie jasta who is the lead singer of hate breed he was the he was the first opener and his band who i had never heard before really good i was really uh and he knows how to work a crowd he has his podcast and stuff like that and he's pretty pretty active in the metal community and uh he was great yeah, I, I must admit, I wasn't familiar with the Devil Wears Prada at all. I've just looked them up. And it, uh, American Metalcore Band, it says here, yeah, from Ohio. I, I, I think you would dig some of their stuff, of yeah. Huh. Um, okay, so uh, the last thing before we move on to talking about Sabbath then, I just wanted to uh, say I'm not sure if... I know we have some Scandinavian listeners. I'm not sure if we specifically have any listeners in Denmark. Uh, but if we do, I am going to be at the Art Bubble Comics Festival in Aarhus, next weekend uh saturday april the 22nd um along with i think there are like half a dozen non-danish uh creators attending basically including glenn fabric um and yes i will be one of them i will be there i will be uh you know sort of talking about and uh selling stuff related to colder city and atomic blonde and basically if any thrash out listeners are gonna be there come by and say hi please do um i would love to to see you Dude, that second Atomic Blonde trailer. Holy crap, man. <laughs> yeah, it's good, in it? <laughs> oh, my God. Some good like, music I can't, in it as well. It's at fever pitch now and getting ready for that movie, man. Oh, it it just it. looked better and better and better. So, yeah. Uh, um, so cool. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So, uh, again, we'll just quickly summarize. So, remember, we do have the Patreon. Uh, we are completely supported by you guys out there, by our listeners. Um, and so you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to pledge if you want to help support us and support the show and help us keep thrashing. Uh, you can go to the Facebook group, the Facebook that is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out um, and join in the conversation there. And of course, if you want to, 
talk to us on Twitter or email us, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com and the links to contact us for our email and Twitter are on there. Thank you very much. So, Sabbath. Black Sabbath. Sabbath. Dum, down, the band down. that many have been waiting for yeah, in volume yeah. three now. Indeed. Um, yeah, I, I almost feel like we should have done volume four just because Sabbath volume four is such an iconic album, but you know. Uh, <laughs> I think we've made the people wait long enough, right? I, I think so. I think so. So, uh, yeah, as I've mentioned before, I got into Sabbath because they were one of the bands that my father liked um, and my uncle, and, you know, they were very formative in my musical tastes as a kid. Um, I... Sabbath have just been... Here's the thing. I am not a sort of super mega fan of Sabbath. You know, I'm not a sort of font of knowledge about them. I'm not... I don't have every album. I'm not sort of, you know, obsessed with listening to them in the way that I am with, say, My Dying Bride or Paradise Lost. Um, Mm -hmm. But, like Motorhead, they have just always been there in my life and in my musical life especially. And their influence upon metal and upon the music that I love is so enormous that, uh, that they just, you know, they are such an important band. And as I've mentioned before, the fact of course, that they're from my hometown, uh, just gives me this deep abiding love for them. Um, and of course it's arguable, and this is something we'll have to discuss, but it is arguable that they were the first real heavy metal band. Um, now, you know, the, lots of people will argue about when heavy metal started, who were the first heavy metal band, what was the first heavy metal album, um, and so much water has passed under the bridge since then, and frankly, so many drugs have passed through people's veins since then, that yep. I, I don't think we will ever get a definitive, you know, sort of definition or answer to that. Um, but there is a lot of evidence. Now, I'm not saying necessarily, as I say, I don't think we can ever say for sure, but if you look at what was going on around that time, there were clearly a lot of bands getting heavier, what we think of as a heavier sound. You know, Led Zepp were already around. They'd already recorded a couple yep. of albums. But if you listen to Led Zepp's first two albums uh, and Deep Purple's first two or three albums, which were, for, which were pre-Ian Gillen... Um, they and Jimi Hendrix as well, you know, all heavy rock stuff. Yes. Uh, you know, but that's the key difference, I think, to me, is that they were playing heavy, loud, blues-driven rock yes. and roll. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of people were doing this heavy. It was heavier, it was electrified, but it was bluesy hard rock. And nobody, to my mind anyway, had really done what we now think of as actual proper heavy metal. Um, the, uh, and the first real song that, of that, of course, was the title track of Sabbath's first album, Black Sabbath, um, you know, with the famous tritone and what is this that stands before me and all that. The reason I didn't pick that album is because it's only that title track that's really notable in in terms of metal. The rest of the album is basically blues rock. It's good. But it's basically just blues rock. Now, that album did make a splash, uh, and it established Sabbath as a heavy band, uh, and it was it was critically panned, commercially successful. Plus a change, you know, that's the history of metal in a nutshell, isn't it? Yep. Um, but it was successful enough that they then rushed back into the studio, uh, like literally some like three or four months after the first album was released, they rushed back into the studio and recorded Paranoid in 
like five days <laughs> or something. Um, and for whatever reason, uh, you know, Paranoid, this album is the the whole album, pretty much. Not in quite 100%, but, you know, more than half of this album is proper, full-on, what we think of as heavy metal. It is a bona fide heavy metal album, and it set a template for years and generations to come. And that is why I chose this one, because I think that this is the album that really changed the landscape of music and what we think of as heavy metal. Well, you've made a strong case there, Anthony, and I'm certainly not (laughs) going to argue that. I think that uh, when we get into the songs, I mean, we could talk more specifics about it, but I do feel like this is a great pick because, uh, you know, you mentioned that before what you were hearing from people was more heavy rock. And then this band is the band that sort of took that next sort of step. And what I like about this album is I feel like they are, they often oscillate back and forth between heavy rock and that heavy metal sound in songs, in the same track, songs in the same track on this album. So to me, what is sort of, uh, very foundational about this album is that you can almost see the fabric of reality changing in terms of music. You can see that evolution and, and it's one of those, it's almost like a, uh, when you're watching like a chick hatch from an egg, it doesn't happen all at once. It happens in sort of fits and spurts. And, and I think when you listen to this album, you can see it happening in those fits and spurts. You can see the heavy metal being born emerging and, and yeah. it is emerging yeah and then and then sometimes it goes back into the shell and you go more towards the rock side and then it punches back out again and then it go and then so by the end of the overall album i think it has emerged you know whole but it was through this sort of fits and spurts as it happens throughout each track on the album and so i do feel like this is an album that's super important because you are witnessing the birth of heavy metal. And some people may argue that, but I really felt that. And and again, not being a huge Black Sabbath fan. Like I, I we talked a, a few episodes ago about how, you know, I like to listen to albums when I have a long car ride and I can just sort of immerse myself in them. Well, what I kind of did with this one is it's since the weather's been a lot nicer lately, I'll take the dog out for a walk and I will listen to the whole album while I'm taking the dog out for a walk. So I'm out strolling around the neighborhood and, you know, walking all over the place and stuff like that. And just listening to this album and sort of coming in and out of each song and that kind of stuff. And I really did feel like it was this, this almost uh push pull sort of thing where you could see the sound literally being born. Yeah. And that to me made this album fascinating. So, you know, I'll, I'll say right off the top, I absolutely enjoyed this album uh, and was the most time that I've spent with any black Sabbath album ever. Um, so, because again, you know, much like somebody was saying about, you know, Priest and Iron Maiden, like Black Sabbath is a band that I like songs from. I don't necessarily, I would not have necessarily said I love, I like that band or I love that band as a whole. I understand their importance. I understand how, how much of an influence they have on this genre that I grew up loving, but they were never a band that I came into at a point because my father wasn't a metalhead and my uncles weren't metalheads. My uncle was a Grateful Dead fan. And right. <laughs> so me, you know, I found my way into heavy metal through my schoolmates and the people that I found my way in through were not, it wasn't Sabbath that they gave to me. You well, know, my, and by my, the time you and I were kids at school, Sabbath were already regarded as an right. old band. Yeah. 
So my gateway drugs were Metallica. My gateway drugs were ACDC. My gateway drugs were Def Leppard and Twisted Sister and stuff like that, which kind of shaped how I, it wasn't Black Sabbath. Although when I heard those iconic songs, many of which are on this album, uh, of course, how can you not like Iron Man? How can you not like War Pigs? Like that. So again, a band that I wasn't in love with, but going back and listening to this album and listening to it as a whole, I really felt like, man, this is, you can feel the soundscape changing. Yep. And that was, that's pretty awesome because it's very rare that you have that bottled in an album. Well, and, and I feel like this one is that. Absolutely. And you can trace so much, so many songs, frankly, you know, and so many bands' sounds from later years back to songs on this album and to sounds on this oh. album. Um, One Alice in Chains came to mind oh, several yeah. times yeah, as yeah. I was listening to this album. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in fact, Jerry Cantrell's favorite uh, Black Sabbath song is on this album. We'll, we'll get to that when we go track by track. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, but it's interesting what you said about how, yeah, it kind of slides in and out of metal and hard rock, hard bluesy rock, uh, you know, even within a single song. And and that you can sort of hear the process almost. You can, you can kind of see the cogs turning. And if you remember, that was what I liked about the Paradise Lost album that we covered, Icon. Um, uh-huh. Because in just the same way, like the, the album that followed that, Draconian Times, is generally the one that most people, most Paradise Lost fans will say, old school Paradise Lost fans anyway, will say is their best album. Uh, and it certainly is their most sort of polished and complete and you know this is the paradise lost sound and it's the same with this like it's the album after this from sabbath master of reality that is the complete like this is what black sabbath sounds like this is their you know their sound and what they are like as a band and this album is not because for the same reason because you can feel them you can hear them feeling their way towards that sound. Uh, And I, that's actually what I like about it much in the same way that I prefer, as I said, icon to draconian times. I like albums where you can almost hear a band figuring out what they're doing and like trying new things. And then the album after that may be great to listen to, but to me, it's it's more cohesive. Right. But to me, it's not quite as interesting because it is kind of like, Oh yeah, we know what we're doing now. And that makes for great music, but as a sort of, you know, as a music listener stroke critic, whatever you want to say, you know, um, I just don't find it quite as interesting. Whereas this album, as I say, I mean, on the one hand, you can argue that it was the first real full heavy metal album, but also I just, you know, in terms of talking about it, I think it's fascinating. It is a fascinating album, and I think to to go back to what you said about how how the figuring out stuff is interesting for bands that I don't have a strong connection to, those are the albums that draw me into that band. Is the albums where they are finding their sound, where they right. are figuring it out, where they are they are taking elements and smashing them together and figuring out what this band is. That is how I like to enter with a new band. For the bands that I have been longtime fans of, you know, like a Megadeth or a Testament or an Exodus, like what I appreciate now as an older listener is the ones where it sounds like they know what the hell they're doing. And that's why I've been so impressed with the latest albums from Exodus and Testament and Overkill, because they are just bands that know their sound and hot damn, are they putting out the best examples of that at this stage of their career. So for bands that I grew up loving and I already know their sound, like I want to hear those bands knowing what the hell they're doing now. That's what impresses me the most. For bands that I haven't 
had that strong of a connection to, I like to go back in their discography and find that time because I, with those other bands that I grew up with, I grew up with them finding that sound. I was there yeah. when they figured it out. I was there when, you know, I listened to all those early albums. So, you know, for me, like this was great to go back and listen to. Like I know all the singles from Black Sabbath, but to go back and really jump into the album where you can feel that birth happening of this sound. Uh, and really not just this sound, because for a lot of bands, that every band has to find their sound. It's rare that a band is finding the sound of a genre. You know, so like, right. <laughs> this is heavier yeah. than that. This is a bigger deal than that. This isn't this isn't uh, hair metal band Z figuring out what their version of the hair metal sound is. This is a band figuring out what what music is going to sound like in this genre for decades to come. Right, a genre that is now almost forty years old. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Um, the the last thing I just wanted to say about sort of the history of because the band Sabbath were formed in the late sixties um, uh, as a different under a different name and stuff, as so many bands are, uh, and then they became Black Sabbath in nineteen sixty nine, allegedly after seeing. Uh, a cinema across the street, which was showing, I think it's a Boris Karloff film called Black Sabbath, um, uh-huh. and allegedly named themselves after that. And the the legend goes, and again, who knows whether this is true? The legend goes that that was also partly the inspiration for why they decided to write sort of heavier lyrics. I remember this yeah. old quote from Ozzy talking about it and saying, like, you know, we'd come up with this heavy music, and you can't sing hippie songs about flowers and love to Tony's guitar riffs. Heavy music needs a heavy lyric. Um, Now, whether they had such a coherent thought at the time (laughs) is arguable. I don't know that there was a lot of coherent thoughts throughout Ozzy's time with this band. Right. Yeah, probably not. Um, But they they say anyway, the the story has become that naming themselves after that movie and geezer butler saw all the people standing in line to see it and said like isn't it amazing how people will spend so much money to be frightened and that made them think oh hang on you know what about this now that sounds a bit neat to me i don't think that's necessarily entirely true right that it was that well planned out yeah yeah exactly um but that way was around that time basically and they like so many bands and especially blue collar bands of that era basically forged themselves in the fire of clubs working men's clubs and pub gigs and stuff and so by the time they actually recorded their first album they were an incredibly tight live band and they recorded their first album again as many bands did back in those days in one go they basically played their live set that first album is their live set that's it um you know no overdubs no re-recordings they just played it uh and so the fact and nobody disputes that by the way that's not one of those like music legend things nobody involved disputes that that is exactly what happened they recorded it in one go and then went down the pub and the fact that they did that and you can listen to that album and it is so amazingly well performed uh in one take is just astounding so yeah their their whole uh recording strategy in general was not super well well in the early out. days yeah yeah even pretty much during ozzy's entire time with them right the amount of time that they dedicated to recording an album the amount of time that they spent recording an album wasn't huge i mean especially like when he came back i think it was for never say die he came back and the guy that the band had been working with he wouldn't sing any of that guy's songs and so they were writing songs in the morning 
and recording them at night during the time that they had in the studio because Ozzy wanted all new stuff when he came in there. Right. Uh, and but, that was just sort of one example of that. Uh, the, and I think for, for the most part that was true, but there were things like by the time they got to volume four in the first like sort of Aussie incarnation of the band, that was, I'm pretty sure that was the one that was recorded in Los Angeles and where the drugs came in. That was where they went completely off the rails and they did take weeks and weeks and weeks in the studio to record that. Now, now, so much of this album is about context. The other thing that especially younger listeners have to bear in mind is that, you know, nowadays, especially with big successful bands like Metallica, if they, if we hear that they spent four months in the studio, that's just average. That's like, you know, whatever. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, nobody spent four months in the studio. I mean, no, not even Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd. Nobody spent that long in the studio to record an album because... It just, it would seem insane. Um, and generally, you know, most bands were not screwing around with experimenting in the studio and they already had their songs written before they went in to record them. You know, exceptions to that would be bands like Pink Floyd. But even they, you know, the, Pink Floyd would spend six weeks recording an album and it would make the front pages of like the the NME and the Record Mirror because it would be seen as enormous extravagance and you know, rock stars being divas and stuff to spend six weeks recording one album. Right. <laughs> it's crazy. So yeah, so Sabbath, uh, were this sort of like really top band. This album, Paranoid was recorded in five days. Um, and the track Paranoid itself famously recorded in just a couple of hours, uh, which again, we'll get into when we go track by track. But so I think it's important to take that in context and also in context, think about the fact that in 1970, 1970, even I wasn't born then. That's crazy. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? 1970 for heaven's sake. I was Nobody. born in 74. Right. And I was born in 72 um which is when uh deep purple's machine head came out incidentally nobody had heard music like this before it's i mean you know i can't put it any simpler than that this music it's music that sounded like this had never been made before um and so yes we can sort of look back and listen to some tracks including some tracks on this album but certainly some tracks from sabbath's early career and to modern ears they sound quite tame in some ways but you have to bear that in mind that nobody had done this before um and so in 1970 it sounded utterly shocking like you read some of the contemporary quotes from reviews about their first couple of albums and critics literally just said like well this is just a bunch of noise this is there's no melody, there's no rhythm, there's no songwriting skill on display. Ozzy can't sing. This is this is horrendous. But you know, what on earth are people doing listening to this stuff? They just didn't understand it because they'd never heard anything like it before. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah which is super interesting because like I said to me as I listen to this, you are you are listening to the birth of a genre. You know, like, so to me, like going back and listening to it, I try to put myself in the mindset of like how alien this must have sounded at that particular time. And even now, I think you can hear that. I think you can hear the background of what was and as Um, you're listening to what's coming. What will be? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. Like you, I, I think you can, I think that is actually captured in like the DNA of these songs and this recording is that you are, you are hearing that you are hearing them punch through what was into in the, they don't even know what it is yet. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) it's happening as it's happening. And, and 
and that's kind of amazing. Like that, that's what is the draw of this album to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, the other thing we should, uh, mention that often gets, I mean, all of them, all of the guys were great musicians, you know, even Ozzy, much as yeah, we take the mic, Ozzy was a great vocalist. Um, but one of the other things that they did, I mean, everybody knows about Tony Iommi's fingers, you know, losing the tips of his fingers yep. in an industrial accident, uh, cause it, you know, like in a sheet metal cutter and stuff. Um, and that influenced his playing style. That's why they're down tuned so that he could bend strings more easily, uh, and, you know, just fret strings more easily with yeah, his, uh, f- you know, sort of homemade prosthetic fingertips. Um, but also Geezer Butler was a guitarist, uh, and not a bassist. And up until this time, most bassists, especially in bluesy rock bands were, virtuosos well not necessarily virtuosos but they were used to playing they were playing under melodies they were playing their own thing on the bass as a a bed for the guitar to sort of noodle over the top that was what a bass player did but geezer was a guitarist not a bassist so he just followed whatever tony iomi played now not always you know you can hear in some tracks he's clearly playing like little you know flourishes and melodies of his own but generally he just followed what tony was playing as a riff and that again i don't think it's fair to say that nobody had ever done that before but i don't think it had ever been the basis of an entire band's sound (laughs) before and that of course now that is just how you play metal bass guitar that is an established part of the metal sound because you have the sort of the really overdriven distorted guitars which loses a lot of bass and so you put the bass in there to sort of resupply refill that area and that's how you get the thick guitar sound of a heavy metal song so you know it wasn't just in terms of the the riffs that iomi was playing and inventing that sort of you know helped define the sound of heavy metal it was also literally the sound of the guitars well, and the sound of uh, Geezer's bass guitar in this album and in general is so heavy to begin with, right? Like you can hear the twang of the of the strings yeah. as he's striking. It just gives it such a weight that uh, the the rhythm section of this album is one of the biggest draws for me to this album. Is that it's just crushing in spots. Yeah, um, yeah. Geezer so, and Bill yeah, Ward were, were, were just awesome. really like Bill Ward. I mean, he's he is. He's amazing on this album, like just in so many different places, what he adds and and just how hard he's hitting the skins and stuff. It's really, it's really, really great. But yeah, Geezer's uh, just the sound of the bass and the, you know, the twang of the strings are just lend a weight. Yeah. I, I think it's fair to say that Bill Ward and uh, John Bonham are probably two of the most influential uh, heavy rock stroke metal drummers of all time, just because of how heavy and loud they played their drums, <laughs> you know, yeah, which again, sure. at the time, most drummers did not. Most drummers were kind of like down in the mix and pushed to the background. And Bonzo and Ward were like, sod that and just whacked everything as hard as they yep, could. <laughs> absolutely. And all over the kit too, you know, yeah, like not, yeah, yeah. not just, not just playing simple lines. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so the album itself is a album is paranoid released uh, in September, 1970. Um, uh, eight songs, forty-two minutes. So actually, not many songs. Like the song, some of the songs are quite long. Yeah. Uh, you know, even for a forty-two minute album. But forty-two minutes itself. I mean, again, you know, at the time that was considered a perfectly fine length for an album. Nowadays, we'd probably think of it as a bit short. But you know, at the time, that was perfectly fine. Um, 
And uh, yeah, it's well. Let's just get straight into the tracks. I think. Well, so, well one one thing before we do, I did. Right. Uh, I do like to pull up quotes from interviews. And back in 2010, uh, Bill Ward was interviewed uh, for part of a documentary. He was interviewed by uh, Goldmine Magazine. Patrick Prince was the guy that did the interview, and this was around the 40th anniversary of Paranoid. And so uh, he was asked, how do you feel about the album getting this sort of re-examination now? And he said, I think I like that it's being looked at again and it's being given some credit. I think it deserves some credit in the sense that we were just playing it as who we were. We didn't have a process of thinking the whole thing out, which goes back to what you were saying earlier. Right, Anthony. yeah. Uh, he said there wasn't anything contrived about it. It was very much almost a phenomena of four guys playing together, being as one, being a band, a real band. And I think you totally feel that, right? As we talked about before on this album. Uh, he said, did you realize, he was asked, did you realize the album was, how special the album was while you were creating it? And Ward said, there were several things I felt back then, but I knew that we were into something different. I, I mean, I think we all did. We knew that we were tapping into something we enjoyed very much, but we knew that it was different. And we knew that it was fragile as well, in the sense that this might not last more than five minutes. Because there were so many opponents in, he says, for lack of better words, higher places that were out to get that album <laughs> yeah. and not give it any time at all. So, you know, again, which that goes back to me of that visual of like the the chick trying to hatch, you know what I mean? Like the process of of trying to birth this thing. Uh, he says, um, and the guy says, can you elaborate more on what, what you mean by fragile? And he says, well, back when we were making Paranoid and when we made our first album, we were still very much a band and we were very tight. There was the band and then the road managers and then the other people who would drive us around and take care of us. There was probably 10 of us. And in a lot of ways, uh, there was a lot of internalizing. You know, we took care of each other. We were really like one. I often refer to it as the four musketeers. I felt It felt like that because there was so much coming from the outside. Between the media and TV and all the new audiences that we were reaching, all the new countries that we were traveling in, there was still very much this newness to everything. And I guess a sense of mistrust. He said, we came from a really hard, tough area in Birmingham, so we learned to grow up with one eye open, so to speak. We weren't stupid in the sense that we were pretty street smart. Uh, he said, keeping that as, in mind, as we were passing through the record companies or talking to lawyers or anything like that, we were very much private. We huddled down and discussed everything that was going on. We had just come from a huge two-year uh, tour in Europe where we would uh, share our food. We were quite penniless, so when we were playing the Star Club and going through the, the Reaper Bond and doing all the things in Denmark and Sweden and so on, uh, we were doing these gigs prior to 1970. We had to learn how to survive because we were basically living for food and playing for food and things like that. So that really does breed a tough veneer. So we had that for some time, and that traveled with us into the new world and the changes that we were going through. And that's kind of what I meant by fragile. So they sort of saw them as us against the world. Right. You know, and, a gang and having, mentality. Exactly. And having to look out for each other because everybody was out to get them. Uh, let's see what else, anything else from this. He said, uh, as with many Black Sabbath albums, there's quite a lot of substance. The interviewer said in a, uh, in a way it's too bad. The album wasn't called war pigs as it was intended because <laughs> yes. it would have been made. It would have made an even greater statement. And Ward said, well, we wanted to call it that, but nobody seemed to understand. I don't blame them. You know, Vietnam, a lot of people were being killed there every day. So I can appreciate them not using the name in that sense. And the interviewer said, but it was quite an effective anti-war statement. And Ward said, I think we made a good statement and we put a lot of force into it when we still play it today. You know, the last time Sabbath toured, which was about four years ago, War Pigs is still a very traditional favorite for everyone. So it still stands. He says, unfortunately, it still stands in today's dynamics as well with Iraq and all the different places 
where there's so much trouble and death going on. That's the downside of it. But we made a good record and a good statement. Um, that so I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, and incidentally, for anybody who doesn't know the story behind it, that is why the album cover of Paranoid looks the way it does. Because that cover was actually made for an album that was going to be called War Pigs. And then at the last minute, uh, partly because the record company heard Paranoid and went, that's going to be the first single. Uh, and also because, yeah, they, they were wary about putting out an album that might have been seen as, you know, a sort of anti-Vietnam protest thing. Right. The, al- the album was renamed Paranoid, but there was no time or money uh, or willingness, frankly, on the record company's part to to make a new cover. And so right. that's why <laughs> you have, you know, a, a bloke with a sword and a shield and a helmet dressed up funny in a forest at night. Yep. And the album's called Paranoid. <laughs> right. That's pretty funny. Oh, man. And obviously that song and the, all the messages in this album still extremely relevant right now in, as we talked about at the top of the show. So it, it is, More's uh, the pity, yeah. yeah, sadly it's an evergreen, you know, sort of, uh, sentiment that you see on the album. Yeah. So, okay. Well, then, yeah. So let's get into the album then. And the first track is what would have been the title track war pigs. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, Lord, yeah. Yep, 7 minutes and 57 seconds. Yeah, yeah, which is... I mean, there's so much about this track, I mean, that I love. It is just a great track, but also, imagine the balls... And this only comes with the confidence of youth, doesn't it? The arrogance of youth. The balls on a band who have just released a first album that was critically panned, but commercially successful. And so they're like, okay, so we know the critics hate us, fine, but the fans love us. Um, And the first track is really long, (laughs) uh, but also starts really slowly. Very Uh, meandering. Yeah. I mean, yep. it's a great intro, and it's kind oh, of fantastic. ominous, and it has the air raid sirens going, but it is kind of, like, slow and a bit mellow, almost. And then, of course, da-da, and yeah. again, like, and then just Bill Ward hitting the hi-hat for, like, yep. eight beats. Like, what 
the and again it's that whole thing of like you're witnessing the birth of this genre it, like it, in this very song you know you're starting off with this psychedelic sort of meandering opening the air horns come in at like 35 seconds and things start to get more ominous and more sinister and then bam it just punches you in the face yeah and it's right. like hello well it does but then the, but then it breathes then you've got that silence of just the hi-hat going again but it's like that it, it's it's the you're shocked at that point, right? So yes. so when it opens like that, it's like getting punched in the face and then taking a minute to step back and take a <laughs> breath and say, what the hell just happened to me? So they give you that. You know what I mean? Like they hit you and then they give you a second to sort of shake the cobwebs out of your head before they hit you again. And that's I, what I kind of like about that. It's this it's this thing that almost like keeps you on your heels. It disorients you. I think that's a really good way of putting it, yeah. And again, you know, like we're talking about this, analyzing it from a sort of, you know, serious listening perspective right, and he's saying we it just was, played man yeah. right yeah you know they weren't i know that that riff that initial da-da bit in uh war pigs came from them jamming uh while they were playing yeah. gigs um yep. you know it just that's how things go sometimes but it's so effective and talking about sort of confidence and the arrogance of youth and we mentioned uh metallica earlier the intro to this reminds me, I say reminds me, obviously, it should be the other way around, but you know what I mean, of Ride the Lightning. Because again, second album, filled with confidence and arrogance. And what yep. do they do? They start off with an acoustic guitar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's that arrogance, that wonderful confidence of youth that goes like, yeah, we can do that. We'll do that. It'll be fine. And it's, it's sort of the middle finger of like, well, you don't get to define us. Like, exactly. we'll, we'll tell you what our sound is. Exactly. And, uh, and yeah, and again, like I said, I love the snap of the bass strings. You can hear the vibration of the bass strings after every note, like just, uh, especially when the, when the, when the rest of the song drops out, right? And it's just that yep. hi hat. It's yep. just, uh, it's super, super heavy. That to me is like the heavy metal sound. Like it, you just feel the weight of it. Yep. Uh, well, and then, you know, and the other thing, of course, that does define their sound is Iomi's legendary riffs. And sure. once once you get past the intro, uh, you know, and the, the infamous l- rhyming of masses with masses. <laughs> right. <laughs> well done, geezer. <laughs> yeah. Um, but once you get past that, and then you get that lovely dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Right. What a fucking great riff. Just, and then, of course, Ward's drums, like, filling in is yeah. just, you know, amazing. Because you you can visualize him sort of going around the kit, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, and again, talking about the birth of, of metal, you know, that is, that riff, that's a metal riff. That's not a blues riff. You know, yes, right. metal's got its roots in the blues, of course, we know that. But that is not a blues rock riff. That is a metal riff. And again, no, you know, to me, the so difference iconic. is, like, you feel it in your core. Yeah. Like that that that's to me the difference. When you hear a metal riff, it it resonates like at your core. And that yeah. is what this song does. It absolutely does. And and then of course, and then the second part of the song, it does get bluesy. You know, the second oh, movement. Oh, for sure. Yeah, the, the, and, and that's what we talked about before. Like, like there's these there's these sort of drifty parts of the song where they where they kind of go off in a much more bluesy direction and then bring it back. Yeah, you know, for the most part, most of the songs will circle back to um you know, to that harder edge. But yeah, I, that to me is where you're almost seeing the ebb and flow of like this sound being born. Yeah, right. And that's the other thing, yeah, is that they do, they have this second movement, it is bluesy, you know, the tempo goes up a bit. And then, yeah, and they come back and they, they don't even, and they come back to the the sort of like just the hi-hats again, as if right. they're starting all over again, which, you know, again, now is kind of not de rigueur, 
but it's not at all unusual. At the time, that was quite unusual. Don't forget, this is before the birth of prog rock as well. Right. Yeah. You know, the, uh, this is before bands like Genesis and Yes and stuff and ALP were doing that kind of stuff. Even Pink Floyd was still very nice, nascent at this stage. So to compose a track like that, again, it's that, you know, shocking. It, 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 mute from a musical standpoint, that is kind of shocking and surprising. Um, and then after the second movement, you know, which it repeated the, sorry, after repeating the first movement, the third, the final movement of the song, I love the way it opens, uh, with, you've got the sort of ringing arpeggio from Iomi. Bill yep. Ward is going nuts on the drums. Yep. Um, but, but one of the things I love about it is that the progression that leads up to Iomi's solo, uh, if you listen to that, that, to me, that is Steve Harris's Bible, because that is such a maiden riff. That scale, the way it like goes yep. up just before the solo, you right. can take that out in isolation, and that is an Iron Maiden track. And I, I'm not disparaging Maiden by that. I'm just, no. but you can see as soon as you listen to that, and you're like, oh wow, you can just picture Steve Harris playing that, you know, with his foot on the monitor. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that again, when when you're talking about a sound in a band that is a foundation of an entire genre of metal, you can't help but immediately, you know, all these images are evoked while you're listening to each song of like, oh yeah that's this player or that's this band or this is a piece of that band sound and you start to you, you know you start drifting into all of those different like i said in one thing it's alice in chains pantera and another one like you can hear all of these different pieces that other bands built an entire sound around yep yeah absolutely um and, and then, then- uh, the other thing too i would mention is that uh you know we could talk about ozzy's singing which i think was better than i remembered it being overall um, <laughs> that's fair <laughs> uh you know what i mean like uh, it was no no, no than i do I, know what you mean yeah yeah he's, like I, aussie is not always great you know and that that is a completely fair thing to say aussie is an inconsistent singer and so but if, he, you, if you're not he had familiar more range with this than stuff, i thought like on this album right, like, and I, right. I feel like he he uh he was just better than I remembered him being. And again, not having spent a ton of time with any particular album of Black Sabbath, like I was pleasantly surprised. And lyrically, I was really impressed just overall. Like, you, you know, you made the joke about the masses and the masses. But I mean, overall, the the pictures that the lyrics paint on this album, some very stark images, oh, you yeah. know, and some very clear uh messages you know here politicians hide themselves away they only started the war why should they go out to fight they leave that role to the poor like just like and that's just pretty much all the lyrics in the song i think are super powerful but man just like images evoked very clearly by the lyrical messages across this entire album yeah and that's geezer you know uh, geezer didn't write 100% 100% of the lyrics for Sabbath. Yeah. And I don't think he even wrote 100% on this album because the last track, I believe, was Ozzy. Um, but most of Sabbath's lyrics in the early days were Geezer Butler. The, there's a wonderful apocryphal story of, um, was it The Wizard? Or, I don't know, there's a, there's a story anyway about him literally dictating the lyrics down the phone uh, to Ozzy in the recording studio at one point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, standing in a phone booth and reading off the lyrics into the phone while Ozzy's in the recording studio at the other end and then he sings them i don't know whether that's true but i I like the imagery um but yeah geezer was is 
a fucking great lyricist, and there's no two ways about it. Like, really, again, considering that people were not writing lyrics like this. No, you know? and, and like, it, the, just, again, to lending to the whole, like, apocalyptic feel of it, like, the, the whole message of the song is like, and where do we end up? We end up with nothing. You know, right. Like with, we, right. The what, last verse. Day of judgment. God is calling on their knees. The war pigs crawling, begging right. mercy for their sins. Satan laughing spreads his wings. Right. You've destroyed Fucking the world great. now. That's what you're left with. And yeah. like, the, so like, just the all in all, like, it, it's hard to take another song. Like this song is heavy metal. You know what I mean? Like this is a song you just put up on the wall and say, okay, that song right there, that is a textbook example of what we now these days consider from a lyrical standpoint, from a, you know, from a heaviness standpoint, just the, the weight of the whole song and the pictures that it evokes in your head, like that, that's a genre right there. Well, yeah, it's, it's a example. I wouldn't necessarily say it's the uh, prime example, but yeah, it's definitely, it's up there. Um, I do love, however, that they clearly didn't know how to end the song. And so you get that weird tape speed up effect at the end. Right. But, but it kind of fits in the way of like it, it all, we're all hurtling towards nothing. You know what I mean? Like we're all. It absolutely does. I, again, I think that's one of those things where that probably was not. We're adding that context stated now. intent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but mm-hmm. you're right. It does work in that sense. Sure. Um, but yeah, I've always thought that's a case of like the band going, shit, how do we end this? <laughs> but, it, but you can totally look at it as the whole, you know, wash, rinse, repeat of, and yes. we're going to keep doing this until we destroy the world. Yep. Absolutely. Um, all right. And then, yeah, I mean, it is an absolute classic. There is a reason that War Pigs is still, that they still play it now and that, Everybody loves it and remember it's just such great riffs, great performance. It is a really a classic um Sabbath track. And then and then we get to track two, Paranoid. Which I think, you know, again, as I mentioned, the last song is a textbook example of heavy metal. Like, this might be the most perfect heavy metal song. In my, It's my favorite uh, Black Sabbath song of any of the songs that they've ever done. This is the number one, yeah, for me. Yeah. This is, as far as I'm concerned, Paranoid is the greatest heavy metal track of all time, and I will fight anyone who says different. I'm um, not going to fight with you about that, <laughs> I, because I, you know, not only is it my favorite black sabbath tune but my favorite band of all time covered it back in 1994 because megadeth did a cover of this for nativity in black and so that just cemented what i already thought was my favorite black sabbath song right right i mean uh this incidentally by the way this i think i've mentioned before that my um 
karaoke go-to is uh, Steppenwolf, Born to be Wild. That's like, I always start karaoke nights with that, but then I always follow up with Paranoid. This is uh-huh. my other, my other pa- par- karaoke, uh, you know, standard track, because I just, I love it and I know it so much. And part of that is because, um, well, let's just get, get a bit of background. This was fairly famously recorded as a filler track. Uh, basically, they had recorded the rest of the album and then realised that it was too short. Uh, and they were like, we need another song. And so they were jamming. And Tony Iommi came up with the riff and Bill Ward started banging away on the drums and Geezer Butler quickly wrote some lyrics and they basically recorded the whole thing from start to finish in a couple of hours. Um, what is the total runtime of this album again? 42 minutes. Yeah, okay. So that makes sense because, and I don't know if I read it about Black Sabbath or somebody else, but... I was reading that for a lot of records, 40 minutes was the minimum. Right. And this in terms track of fulfilling is, your contract. Right. And this track is just under three minutes. So right. Which puts it, them over the 40 minute mark. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it really was like just a kind of a throwaway filler track. And yet they, in the process of doing so, they basically created a template for heavy metal for a generation to come. I mean, it's, it's astounding. Um, it, it certainly supports my well-worn theory that, you know, some of the best songwriting comes out of quick recordings out of being, right. you know, like under pressure and just recording something really quickly. Rather right. It's, than it's the whole, it. uh, magic versus science argument. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, Ex- yeah, it, yeah. If you, if you try to get into the science of it, you can't make the magic. Yep, yep. And uh, I mentioned earlier about Giza following Guyomi and what have you. This is also the first Sabbath track, and I think possibly the first ever track in music, to feature that kind of consistent chugging throughout the whole song. Like, not that nobody had ever palm-muted chords before. You know, they, yes, yep. that had happened before. But to make it the foundation of the riff throughout the whole song with the root note bass following along to fill out the sound. I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that that was literally, this is the first time that had ever been done for, you know, as I say, to make it the basis of the entire song. And of course now that is, that's metal. That is how you play heavy metal. (laughs) Right. That is the foundation. Yeah. It's astounding. Um, So I just want to quickly give you uh, a little bit. One of the reasons why I love this track so much is because, and I'm, I'm cribbing here from an article I wrote for uh, the Comics Connection for a f- phonogram fanzine back in 2009. <laughs> it was a semi-official fanzine uh, talking about, you know, music and stuff, obviously. And uh, for people who don't know, Phonogram uh, is one of the first creator-owned efforts from Kieran Gillen and Jamie yep. McKelvey, who are now much better known for The Wicked and the Divine, their hugely successful image comic. Um, and Phonogram is about a world where music is literally literally magic um where magicians use music to you know perform magic uh and i wrote about paranoid um for you know and i, I won't give you I won't, i'm not going to read out the whole thing and what have you but i will just say i'll give you a quick summary so i was uh eight years old when i got my first record player uh and it was a hand-me-down an all-in-one what they called a dance set at the time it had a radio tuner and amplifier and a turntable all in one unit um and obviously i was very young so i didn't have many records to play on it but what i did have from my parents record collection was a was an album called rock of ages and it was a compilation album of rock music and and it had like you know medicine head and captain beefheart and mot the hoople and cream and bands like that on it 
And the first track was Paranoid by Black Sabbath. I was eight years old and it just, it changed my life. You yep. know, how, how, how are you supposed to deal with a song like Paranoid when you're eight years old? I didn't understand a word of it. And I mean that like almost literally because, you know, at the time I, I could barely understand what Ozzy was wailing around. Um, uh, as it also contributed to one of my favorite Mondegreens, which is uh, in the last verse, I could have sworn for years that Ozzy was singing, um, you know, in the, uh, the last couplet is so, and so as you hear these words telling you now of my state, I tell you to enjoy life. I wish I could, but it's too late. For years, I thought he was saying, I tell you to end your life. I wish I could, but it's too late. Same, same. <laughs> yep. It's absolutely the same thing that oh, I thought man. it was too. Um, so, but yeah, it had such a formative, enormous effect on me because I had, again, I had never heard anything like that before. And you've got that urgent four square chugging beat with relentless precision, energy, power. It just did something to me. And that was the birth of my life as a metalhead. But, uh, but that's it, right? That's the magic moment because like it, as a metal fan, everybody has a point in their life where they, he, if they, if they are into music at all, everyone has a point in their life where they hear that song and one of two things happens. They're either repulsed by it, and that never becomes a genre of music that they are into, or it speaks to them at their very core. Yep. And when that does, that from that point forward, you're in. And yep. so that, to me, is like, that's the birth of a metal fan right there. And so, yeah, the fact that, that this was that song for you makes perfect sense to me why this is an album that will forever be embedded in like your, your metal DNA. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, I honestly think it took me like the best part of a week to even bother playing track two on that <laughs> right, album. You're like, there, there is no other song on this yeah. album. I just, that first track amazed me. So I, rem- I do remember taking off the needle, like putting it back at the start of the album and just listening to it again immediately because, like I say, I'd never heard anything like it before. It was amazing. Uh, and yeah, and it just led to, you know, my life as a metalhead. So yeah, I absolutely. I mean, I can, I know Paranoid so well that I can dissect it from a musical point of view. And I love Geezer's little bass flourishes underneath the main riff and stuff. But essentially, it just, to me, it is an almost perfect heavy metal song. Well, and, and you know, for me, like, one of the messages that I take away from the song, is, you know, we talk about all day long, I think of things, but nothing seems to satisfy. I think I'll lose my mind if I don't find something to pacify. Can you help me occupy my brain? And... certainly there's uh, drug messages that you could take out of that for me like it's about music that's what that's what i always thought of when i heard the song is like music is that thing that pacifies my brain i don't know what i would do if i didn't have music right like if i could never listen to music like that that is one of the things that keeps me sane is having this cathartic you know uh this thing that's always there this like I couldn't even remove music from my music is the soundtrack of my life. Like this, this music, this, this metal, this, you know, hard rock stuff like is attached to almost every memory I have going through my childhood and teenage years and adulthood and everything else. And so for me, music is that thing that occupies my brain. There's always a song in my head. There's always a song in the back of my mind. And so to, to take that away from me would probably drive me insane. 
Right. Yeah. Well, um, before I get, I was just going to, I agree. And there are even pop music there are, that makes me think of things. I have memories of like primary school that are linked to bits of pop music. And I remember them through thinking, oh yeah, that was when I was listening to this record or when that oh, song sure. was, it was in the music charts or whatever. Duran um, Duran. I was huge into Duran Duran growing right. up. Like they were such a huge starship. I was huge into starship. Adam growing and up. the like, Ants. Yeah. Yes. Dude. Like, and, and then obviously when MTV hit, I was listening to everything because it was right. all together. It was all part of this. So like that for me, I have a love of eighties music in general, not just rock and heavy right, metal right. Like in general. Um, but what yeah. I will say about Paranoid specifically, I mean, that's, that's really interesting that you, that you put that meaning on it. And I, I think again, from a sort of revisionist critical point of view, I think that's absolutely valid. However, I do know, uh, because I remember, uh, reading this in an interview a while ago that, uh, and this again speaks to sort of the, the times and the situation at the time, uh, it's actually about depression. Um, but at the time depression wasn't a thing that people talked about and the idea of clinical depression wasn't i mean we used to call psychotic breaks things like nervous breakdown you know that it was just it was a different era and so paranoid was kind of the closest thing they could think of to describe the feelings that the lyrics here were supposed to encapsulate you know oh i completely agree with that and and for me like the the answer to the question that he's asking in the song is music is music like for right, me yeah. it is for other people it might be something else but oh, that, sure, sure. That, so yeah like i'm i'm 100 uh that is the question that he's asking it's like how do i how do i get out of my own head you know yeah. how do how, help me find something that sort of grounds me and you know for me that's music well and that lovely couplet you know um well, in fact, the whole of the second, I need someone to show me the things in life that I can't find. I right. can't see the things that make true happiness. I must be blind. Make a joke and I will sigh and you will laugh and I will cry. Uh-huh. Happiness I cannot feel and love to me is so unreal. I mean, that is just, you know, whether they consciously knew it or not, whether they could put a name to it or not, that is what depression feels like. It's, yep. uh, you know, people talk about the the sort of the juvenile nature of heavy metal and the naivety of heavy metal. That is not a naive lyric. That is an incredibly insightful no. lyric, uh, song lyric, I, I think. It reminds me of when we talked about the Dio album and the song Invisible, right? Mm. And how um, he tells three different stories during that, you know, yes. about some, a kid struggling with the sexuality, a, a girl who's running away from a home where there's abuse happening and stuff like that. Like that... And again, that's a deep cut on that album. That's not even one that, you know, that that was one of the more popular tracks on that album. But yeah, that's, we know, because we listen to this stuff, that those messages are embedded in so many of the songs that resonate with us. But you're right, from an outsider's view, um, the rap is, it's just like the the rap of video games are for kids, comic books are for kids. You know, it's it's that outsider's superficial view of it that, yeah, this kind of music could not possibly carry messages that deep. And yeah, yeah, we know that it does. Absolutely. Right. It's our lifeline for most of the, like, it's because of those messages that many of us found this genre of music to be the one that resonated with us the right. most because yep. we found that's the catharsis, right? You, here are these people saying the things that you're feeling. I mean, imagine, imagine being in a bout of depression and hearing this song and hearing someone describing you. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff is like, how can you not form just a, like a, a fundamental connection to this music and be 
forever connected to it because it, yeah, it, well, it that's speaks the sort of thing you. that can that's the sort of thing that can change your life isn't it you Before, know when you realize that you are not alone i bet if we asked a question like i'm sure there are albums and songs that people would consider having saved them at certain times in their lives or carried them through very difficult times in their lives and that's how to people who just adore music, uh, that's where that connection is. It's not only the memories, but it's times that it got you through really dark times because of you felt like it understood you. Yep. Yeah. Somebody should uh, start that. Th- somebody start that thread on the Facebook page. That would be really interesting to talk about, actually. Right. Everybody uh, has their breakup album, right? The album that got them through the love of their life, you know, leaving them or something yeah. <laughs> like that, or or the death of a loved one, or a time where they were depressed, or a time where they might even have been suicidal. Like that, that, uh, and I feel like in the metal community, like that, there's a lot of that. You know, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of examples of the of those moments that music helped. Well, remember I said that uh, when we did it, when we covered it, um, Typo Negatives October Rust was a breakup album for me. You know, that right. album absolutely got me through getting over that relationship. So, yep. yeah. Uh, so let, let's move on uh, to track three. Uh, I think this is going to be an interesting one to talk about. Planet Caravan. I made a joke to you before we started recording that this was the, the throwaway song for me on this album. Uh, very dreamy, very trippy, four minutes and 32 seconds. Uh, this was an album that, this was an album, this was a song that I r- literally knew nothing about until I heard it in 1994 on Pantera's Far Beyond Driven. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> and when I heard it, I was like, this song sucks. Why is this song on this album? Um, I hated it. And so, to me, it dra- it dragged that whole album down. And so, uh, obviously, in reading the liner notes and, you know, digging a little deeper, I realized it was a Black Sabbath song that they were doing a cover of. Um, didn't do anything for me then, doesn't do much for me now, although, uh, you know, it in the context of the whole album, because there's plenty of trippy and psychedelic and sort of dreamy elements to this album— in in the softer sort of uh, places, it fits better in this album than it fit when Pantera did a cover of it on their album over there. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't hold up with any of the other songs. And uh, like this song to me doesn't even, it's not even as good as Rat Salad. Like it doesn't hold up to any oh, wow. of the other songs on this album to me. So um, it, I, I appreciate what they're doing. I, I actually read that... Um, 
couple interesting things about this because I tried to make myself more interested in this song. Number one, Geezer Butler said that the song's meaning is it's about floating through the universe with with your lover. Yep. So just conceptually, that's what, which I think it paints that picture as you're listening to the lyrics. Now, Ozzy, th- this has a very weird effect on the vocals in this particular song, very sort of dreamy, far away um, yep. almost like through a, through a paper towel tube uh, sort of kind of thing. <laughs> it says, uh, Ozzy uses what's called a Leslie speaker yep. to achieve the vocals treble in, in uh, vibrato effects. The Leslie speaker is a combined amplifier and two-way loudspeaker that projects the signal from an electric or electronic instrument while modifying the sound by rotating the loudspeakers. So rotating I thought that was interesting. Yep. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Well, you uh, remember the Anthrax album, Sound of White Noise? Yes. Uh, remember the track, what was it, Black Lodge? Oh, that yeah. was co-written with Angelo Badalamenti. Um, uh, that used a rotating Leslie. Well, the, the guitar oh. effect on that, that's the same thing. That's a rotating Leslie cabinet, yeah. Yeah, um, the effect is super cool. And, and again, it's a very dreamy... I, I think musically the track like gets across the idea of floating through the universe as well. It's one of the things I like about it. Like I, I like this track a lot more than you. I certainly would take this over Rat Salad any day. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, Sabbath were in the early days anyway, until they got to America. Sabbath were always more of a weed and booze band sure. than Speed or Coke. And I think this track, and there's another track on, I think. It's on their next album, actually, called Sweet Leaf, uh, which kind of, you know, <laughs> tells you what you need to know. Uh, but this track really demonstrates that. I think this is a very hippie, trippy, uh, yep. dreamy, gentle sort of mellow track. I really like it. Um, I think it I, speaks to the whole, like, push-pull that we talked about before, right? Like, this isn't... This, this album is not, is not me- just... Yeah. Right, this is not a metal track. No, it's not. Right. Um, but it is... Uh, it's a good track. I think Geezer's little bass flourish, though. Oh, it's bit, very good. It's the lovely. best part of the song to me. Um, Ozzy's voice is, you know, putting his voice through a Leslie cabinet, I think was inspired. Um, and, you know, and the rhythm and the guitars are all mellow and everything. And, you know, Bill Ward on his bongos. Um, but the apart from the fact that I just like the track, I think it's important to think about this track in context because you've got a... Again, think about, like I said with the beginning of Warpix, think about the balls of a band who have just had a big success with an album that was basically described as discordant noise, and this is the third track on the album that they make to follow that up. You know, uh, know, Again, it's that middle finger of, like, you don't get to define us. It is, but I think in giving the middle finger to everybody with this track, I don't know that they did themselves any favors with the placement of it here. You know what I mean? Well, like, we ma- come off of War Pigs, we come off of Paranoid, and then we go into Planet Caravan. Like, it's interesting that they chose it to be song three, when, uh, to me, it's almost like the song that you would put later on in the album to give people a breather before you really brought it home. You know right. what I mean? But And that's absolutely true, but again, we're talking about stuff that hadn't been done before. And this oh, is sure. the other thing, is that yep. I think this, the inclusion of this track is part of why we have a legacy of, you know, a ballad or a mellow track on heavy metal albums. Um, And they are, as you say, they're normally around about track seven. 
you know, or track five or something for that exactly that reason. Whereas right. here, they didn't know. How could they know? Because people didn't do people this. Are, right, they're, they're literally <laughs> you know? uh, mapping it as they go, like yeah. a like a and d adventure. Right, they um, had no prior sort of, right. you know, template to follow. So I agree that I think the album as a whole would probably be better if this was, say, the second track on side two or something. Sure. Um, but, uh, but they didn't know that, obviously. And I do just think that it, cert- it took a certain amount of balls to go, yeah, this will be track three after sure. a really, really heavy, fast track. Let's yep. do this. Why not? <laughs> well, and then as as you get into song four. Uh, right, right. Song four, which is, of course, Iron Man. gets all washed away immediately anyways you know what i mean like a, right a, a, i mean it's a, a kick in the teeth to follow a, that with this <laughs> is there a more sinister or hell sounding note you know like that than, bent string note the yeah, burr, like yeah. just like it just is horrifying you know what and, i mean like it, it could and, only and Oz, come Ozzy's, from a dark place right and again ozzy's processed voice you know the, with a whole i am iron man would i yeah. don't know what the hell he was singing through and, there but and you know we talked about paranoid you know being sort of the prototypical heavy metal song we talked about how i think war pig is a tech, textbook example of that too here again i mean you you yeah. could make the argument that this song defined heavy metal i mean Absolutely. everything about this song is alien and just evil you know what i mean like just like yep. it, it, the lyrics dropping this song on someone you could see how people at the time who when, when this was something that was brand new were just like what in the world is this right again shock imagine the shock um yep. and you know one of the greatest heavy metal riffs of all time Oh, for I, mean, sure. I mean, can anybody argue that the, you know, dun, 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 is I mean, not just one of the most, I mean, people still play that now. No. I, I would imagine, I mean, how many people who are learning to play guitar or bass, this is one of the first Learn songs. That riff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's everywhere. It, yeah. 
It because absolutely it, is. Because it's deceptively simple. It's not a difficult riff to play, but it is so powerful and so effective. It's like smoke on the water. Again, yes. not difficult to play, but sounds so good. Yeah. Uh, uh, what I like is the third time that he plays that bent note, it comes in just a tiny bit earlier, just to yes. kind of keep you on your heels. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's just, it's just the whole thing. There's a sense of wrongness about this song from that opening note to the timing to the distortion of Ozzy's voice. Like, the whole thing is just meant to sort of twist your gut. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and the thing is, you know, yes, it's a great riff, and Ozzy's vocal is classic as well. You know, that, that I mean, he does a really good job singing this song. But, you know, musically, let's not overlook the rest of the song, the other elements. You've got sure. that descending, like, minor key passage in between the verses. That da, 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 which is which, great. Which is great, yeah. And then the climbing lines, when Ozzy's singing, Nobody Wants Him, and the guitar starts going, do, 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 which again, is kind of, you know, you see that so in so many places now. Yeah. Um, uh, and then the the middle eight in being in double time. Which to me, like, I always think of my, my, my layman's term for that is like the turn. It, so, it sounds like it's turning. Right, You know what right. I mean? Like that, that's how I, I always describe that when I'm talking about that type of, um, that type of sort of a phrase. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, the middle eight and solo are in double time. And then it goes back to single time after that, which, you know, be- between this and paranoid, you can probably trace half of the heavy metal songs that have ever been written <laughs> back yeah. to these two songs yeah. and their structure. It's amazing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You, you could absolutely take that blueprint and just superimpose it over people could just give you suggestions this yeah. song and you could superimpose this song superimpose it yeah uh, and then the, the the i mean we'll talk about the lyrics in a second but musically i just want to say the coda that ends it as well i love the fact that they end with that coda and ward again going nuts on the drums on the floor yep. tom with that sort of like pounding rolling drums he um, he does hammer the drums on this song he really does yeah yeah uh and then lyrically yeah i mean you know that wonderful sci-fi story basically oh dude it's awesome um we, he was turned yeah. to steel in the great magnetic field <laughs> i know dude, where he, how awesome is that where and he that, traveled time for the future of mankind yep I, and i mean it's badly phrased in places and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense as a story but the and imagery in it right the imagery in it is so amazing uh vengeance from the grave kills the people he once saved you know just ah yep. uh, and at the uh, of course the for my mind the most memorable heavy boots of lead fills his victims full of dread right <laughs> because again it goes back to the to the beating of the skins at the very beginning of the song, you know, where it's yep, just that yep. plodding, like you, it immediately brings you back to that of like, that's what it sounds when he's coming for you. Yep. Yep. And he's coming. <laughs> yep. Awesome. Uh, I mean, just, we, you could, you could do a whole podcast on this song, but you're absolutely but, right. I mean, it is this one in paranoid. You could certainly, that blueprint is everywhere. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And this was the end of side one. Uh, you know, what a vi- great finisher for on side one. Vinyl. Holy crap. Uh, yeah. One of the most classic turns out to be one of the most classic metal songs of all time. Yeah. And again, if we're talking about this sort of laying the foundation, talk about driving home the importance of finishing strong on the first side of an album. Yes. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. This sets um, the bar as high as it could possibly be. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. And then you flip, uh, I mean, you know, to be honest, if that was just the entire album, 
it would be it would still be awesome. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, uh, you the, could. That could have been an EP and just been fine. Yeah, and it, and it still would have been an absolute classic. But instead, we get another side. So you turn over, and track five is Electric Funeral. <laughs> I love this song. Well, this is apparently Jerry Cantrell's favorite Sabbath track. You can, that makes perfect, perfect sense to me. Doesn't it just? Doesn't yep. it? With like the doomy riff and the wah effect on the guitars. Oh, just, you think of like Rooster and like just so many songs from Alice in Chains, especially their, their more uh, dreamy stuff, you know, yeah. like that. Absolutely. But the the opening of this song is just... It's got that muted feel to it, but it's sinister. Yeah. There's a sinister undercurrent to it, a very sort of evil and mournful type of feel to it, which I love. And the main riff just creeps along. And I, I love that. Obviously, around, you know, a minute 55, two minutes, it gets into more sort of a groovy vibe. But the beginning of that song is just very evil sounding to me, very sinister sounding. It is. It it is doom. I mean, like yeah, you know, yeah, th- totally. there's. You could probably argue that this song is the birth of doom metal. Oh, uh, just just play the opening thirty seconds for someone, and it's just like it just creeps along and like slithers. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's uh, great. I, I love it, and and yeah, I mean, can't you just imagine Lane Staley singing this as well? God. And then uh, the, the lyrics: three flecks in the sky warn you you're going to die. Storm coming, you better hide from the atomic tide. Flashes in the sky, turns houses into styes, turns people into clay, radiation, minds decay. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there's no doubt in what this song's about, lyrically. Oh, sure. Uh, (laughs) Plastic flowers, melting sun, fading moon, falls upon dying world of radiation. (laughs) Pretty clear. Pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And yeah, it's, uh, I, I love it. I mean, th- to be honest, the the whole middle section where it gets groovy and bluesy, I could actually kind of live without that. Oh, it's, me too. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay, but it, it's it's a bit Led Zepp. Yeah, it, and the it, thing that I like is they find their way back. Right, right. They get back to the doom. Yeah, um, you know, which as any, anybody who listens to the show will know is you know going to be my favorite part. But, which is a problem that I often talk about. We you know when we talk about Metallica, how halfway through the song it changes into a different song and it never comes back. What I right. like is at least we make our way back here. Like I can, I can deal with, uh, you know, the digression. If even if I don't like it, if we make our way back, yeah. The like one thing it, I do like about that uh, about the the middle section is that Geezer flies during that section. Yeah. Like he is mm-hmm. all over the fretboard and up near the top of it as well. You can really hear him, and he's just going crazy on that bass, which I do like. 
because he doesn't get enough credit, I don't think. Yep. Um, uh, and then, yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a bit of a shame that this song fades. Uh, you know, at the end, it would have been nice to give it a proper ending. Um, but as we've spoken about before, you know, back then that was just a much more common thing to do was to right. you know just just keep repeating repeat until fade in fact that was do you remember that on the bottom of uh, lyrics yep you you'd get that repeat until fade in parentheses <laughs> you don't see that much anymore yeah um, makes anthony shake his fist in the air <laughs> it really does finish it properly don't yeah. you <laughs> uh but uh, it does fade and then leads into track 6 hand of doom Which is another song I really like. Yep, yeah, it's a it's a, a classic Hand of Doom. I mean, it's again, you know, talking about templates. It starts quiet, then bang in with the like heavy drums and guitars, and then back to quiet, uh, and then transitions to a fast second movement. Although yep. it's not much of a transition, it just kind of like one bit ends and another bit starts. <laughs> right, and like yeah, like you as you mentioned, I had written down like forty three seconds. It really kicks in at two minutes. It it completely changes at 342 you've got that galloping riff that comes in like but i i like the beginning i like the beginnings of a lot of their songs like this is another song that i like how how the the instruments are kind of muted and ozzy sounds really clear over the top of them yeah well and i figured you'd like the intro to this one because it's basically ozzy and uh and geezer playing the bass right yeah it's uh you can fully hear geezer on this one and it's and it's again it's a lovely quiet but still kind of ominous yes. riff that he's playing. Uh, and that and to then, me is what really is the whole Black Sabbath thing. It's the ominous. Yeah. It, like that just weaves through. It just kind of snakes through all of the songs. Like even the ones that feel like they're slower or more subtle or something like that. And maybe that's why Planet Caravan doesn't resonate with me as much because I think it lacks the uh, that touch of evil. You know that's what I mean? True. Like, yeah. It, it doesn't, it's more of a, a dreamy cosmic sort of drifting song, but it doesn't have that ominous doom tinged piece to it. And I think if it did, it would feel like it fit better to me with the rest of them, which I think all of the other ones do maybe with the exception of rat salad, um, (laughs) because it's more of an instrumental and and kind of them just showing off a little bit, but, but everything else has that in it. Yeah. I think that's fair. Actually. I hadn't thought about that with regards to planet caravan, but yeah, I would, I wouldn't disagree. I think that's a fair criticism of it. Yeah. I mean, it's as I say, I still like it anyway, but yeah, that's uh it doesn't have you're right that kind of there's nothing in it that's negative <laughs> musically right. or lyrically uh, whereas every other track is full there's of, that sinister know, element yeah. yeah yeah um and you know not just 
I mean, the whole thing is sinister. But as I say, you've got like the bass quiet but sinister. But then again, when it like crashes in with a down, 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 just bang, you know, it's so powerful because yeah, the it's bit, big. Because one, well, because the preceding part was so quiet. Yeah, um, they they do a great job with contrast. Yeah. It's so effective. Um, the, lyrically, the weird thing about this one that gets me is, I mean, this is obviously, this is about heroin. Uh, or about For hard sure. drug, hard drugs that you inject in any right. case. Um, uh, but there is a line there in there about, so it, it says, so drop the acid pill, don't stop to think now. And that's always puzzled me. Because, like, obviously you don't inject acid. Uh, right. And also, you know, acid is not, a sort of hard heroin, you know, seriously addictive style drug. And I have often wondered if that's naivety because Geezer, you know, has said many times and said many times in the past that he was not a big drugs guy. Uh, you know, he, he claimed to know almost nothing about drugs beyond dope before they went to America, but they didn't go to America until after this album. And yep. so I've often wondered if if he's just kind of mixing up Oh, drugs. They're all the same, apart from weed. Uh, <laughs> into this, the lyrics of this song. It's very odd, but it is so clearly, I mean, and kind of ironically, given, you know, what happened to almost all of the band uh, in right. the ensuing years, you know, it is so clearly an anti-drug song. Um, whereas the, the the last, after the solo, when it comes back in um, to the, the main verse and you've got, now you know the scene, your skin starts turning green, your eyes no longer seeing life's reality, push the needle in, face death's sickly grin, holes are in your skin, caused by deadly pin. I mean, that's not ambiguous. <laughs> no, but it also, like, it, it, like it, to me, like, it doesn't judge either because it talks about, like, yeah, th- this is the awful things that are happening because of the drugs, but also, like, it gets to the reasons why people do them in the first place. Like, it says, first yes. it was the bomb, Vietnam, napalm, disillusioning, you push the needle in. It's the whole escaping from what you've seen and escaping from your reality that leads you to do that in the first place, and then you find out that it's, it ends up being worse than whatever you were trying to escape from. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, there yeah. is the line, you know, there is the line that says, oh, you, you know, you must be blind to do something like this, which right. is kind of judgmental. That's a little judgmental. Yeah, but, yeah, I guess you could make that. But, like. <laughs> but it is sympathetic, as you say, yeah. It's like, you know, understanding why people do this. And I think this is... But kind of explaining to them at the end, like, I know this seems like a good idea. Like, I know, really I know not, that you're yeah. thinking that this is going to get you away from the thing that you are trying to, to escape, but trust me. It's going to be right. worse. And, and I mean, the thing is, in frankly, in Birmingham, in the 1970s, in the late 60s, early 70s, heroin was not, you know, a drug that anybody was concerned about. I'm not sure it had ever even, you know, hit the streets of Birmingham at that point. Um, but uh, I think this is one of the things that blue-collar bands... You'll often find that the anti-drug stuff in metal is from the sort of the kids who've basically scrabbled their way up from the streets yeah. um because i think frankly they're more likely to have seen it yeah. uh you know firsthand and i think that's where the sympathy comes from in the lyrics yep. to this yeah interesting song and a great song uh and uh but unfortunately leads into uh rat salad track seven
which is kind of just a drum solo song. Yeah. I mean, that. which again, I, I don't necessarily have a problem. I don't have a problem with instrumentals in general. Um, and some of them I really, really enjoy. But this one, it, it's, it's okay. Just, like, it's, it's neither not great nor terrible. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's it, not... I mean, it's only it's only a couple of minutes long. Uh, it yeah. is the shortest track on the album. It is basically Bill Ward's drum solo. There's a Tony Iommi once said that the, this was on there just because when they used to play uh, gigs in Europe, especially where you'd be playing literally, you'd be on stage for several hours at a time. Um, that they would fill time by Bill just doing like a really long drum solo while the that's rest exactly of the band what it brought to mind to the for me because you know? <laughs> also with most of the eighties bands that I grew up with, when you went to see them in concert, there was a drum solo and that was yeah. the part where the other members of the band would go off stage and the drummer would, would do his thing. And whether we're talking about Van Halen or any of the hair metal bands or whatever, there was always a drum solo. And so yeah. that to me was this, like the drum solo before the finish. Right. Which is exactly what it is. Um, yep. I, I think it's kind of a shame only in that, uh, you know, I think a, a great metal instrumental from Sabbath would have been great um, because there, there's a distinct, you know, that instrumentals weren't something generally that, uh, you know, metal instrumentals anyway, weren't sure. something that, that a lot of bands did. Uh, bluesy instrumentals, I mean, you'll find those even on the first Sabbath album, you know, there's whole right. sections of that that are just sort of like bluesy jams, uh, you know, hard rock blues stuff. Um, but I was, it got me thinking, were there, now, I'm not going to claim that this was the first one, but the first one I can think of, the first real metal instrumental, not bluesy jam sounding type of thing, but an actual, like, this is a heavy metal song that just happens to not have any lyrics. The first one I can think of is Call of Cthulhu. I cannot think of an earlier one than that, which is kind of, I I would love to hear from readers. If I'm overlooking something really obvious, please let me know, because I genuinely can't think of a proper metal instrumental. Because even on Kill 'Em All, uh, there was only... Um, pulling anesthesia. teeth, yeah. yeah, anesthesia pulling teeth. Um, you know, which isn't really. I mean, that again, that's just a bass solo. It's not really sure. a full instrumental. So, yeah, I'd be really interested to hear from anybody who can think of a proper metal instrumental that predates Call of Cthulhu. Because if Metallica ended up creating the metal instrumental, that would be quite something. <laughs> that would be quite something. I'm interested to hear if anybody has any other examples. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it is, as you say, it's only a couple of minutes long. Uh, yeah, it, leads... it doesn't overstay its welcome to the point right. where you're begging for it to end. Like, it, you know, it's two minutes and 30 seconds. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and then it leads into track eight, the final track, Fairies Wear Boots. Dancing with a dwarf. Oh, right now. 
I feel like the opening is a little Van Halen-esque to me. That was the image that it conjured in my mind. Was the, ah, uh, well, that's the, the first, I don't know, is it minute, minute and a half or so of this track is actually almost like a separate track. It uh, is, it's, because it's not until a minute and 15 that it actually settles into the groove of what the actual song is. Right, minute and 15, yep. right, right. And that first minute and 15 is apparently called Jack the Stripper. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> uh, and is basically a separate little instrumental track uh, that they wrote, but for some reason on the album itself didn't credit separately didn't title separately uh huh. and so it just became the intro to fairies wear boots but yeah apparently you know sometime later they said oh yeah that's no that's a separate track um called jack the stripper go figure i don't know yeah i mean i don't feel like it's so alien to the rest of the track that it couldn't fit with that song but that makes that's interesting that, that right, that's how nothing, it was originally written nothing in that's in that segment repeat musically right. in the main song of fairies wear boots so yeah i've always thought that it was a bit oddly placed um but you know as i say they did this on their first few albums you know there were these weird instrumental bluesy passages because they were that sort of band that played lots of live gigs and did lots of jams because you had to fill time and this to me is one of the least metal songs on the album like it's more it's much more of a rocky yeah um you know psychedelic uh song not a bad song but not one of my favorite songs on the album I would agree. I mean, it, this is much more sort of blues, hard rock. Um, it was allegedly, this is the one that Ozzy uh, supposedly wrote the lyrics to, um, apparently after getting beaten up by a bunch of skinheads. Um, oh. And that's the the fairies wear boots thing, you know. Um, I, I mean, it's over the years, Ozzy has said that's not true. Other members have said it's not true. And then Ozzy has said it is true. And other members have said, oh, yeah, Ozzy wrote that. It's just, who yeah. knows? You know? <laughs> it's it's impossible to get to the truth of all this Um, but it would be interesting to think of like would this song have been better off at a different place is this a good closer right right and that's the thing i think talking again about sort of album composition from a modern perspective no absolutely this you know if you if you've got to keep the track at all if you were putting together a modern running order for this album uh, you would put this somewhere in the middle of side two. You'd bury this yeah. in the middle of side yeah, two, basically. Exactly. You? And you would put either Electric Funeral or Hand of Doom probably yes. uh, off the second as the closer because either one of those I think would have would have worked out better. Um, yeah, I, I I agree completely. I mean, it is. I've actually I've even written in my notes. It's almost a shame that the album ends with this. Um, but the thing is, their first well, because album, it leaves you with less than a heavy metal impression. When yeah. when you look at the album in its totality, as we've talked about before, it is a it is a foundational, it is the foundational album. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So to, yeah. to end on a note that's anything less than we have just birthed a genre of music here, feels like it's underselling it a little bit. You know? Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, it is. Um, but again, I was going to say the first album, they did exactly the same thing. The first yeah. album ends on a sort of a medley of three tracks all melded together. Um, and, you know, and they're very blues rocky and it kind of ends with not quite a whimper because it does end with a sort of like, uh, you know, the almost like a live closer where everybody just goes and the drums are going, you know, and it it ends like that. But the track preceding it is just kind of, you know, not particularly heavy or all that interesting really. Um, And it is mostly instrumental track. And so, yeah, I I can only put that down to the times, you know, and just sort of not realizing at the time what they had 
in their hands, as it were. Yep. I think by the time you get to Master of Reality, to the third album, I think by then they had figured it out. They'd gone, oh, okay, this is what we are, this is what we do, this is the sort of music we've made, we've birthed a genre here, okay, let's let's take a bit more care over this sort of thing. Uh, but I think at this stage they were still, yeah, they just didn't know what they had, which is kind of charming, really. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And again, how could they know, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about a time where even on the album it doesn't exactly know, mm. <laughs> like as, as they're playing through it, but yeah. But again, not a bad song, just not one of my favorites on the album, and I, I probably would have ended on a on a stronger note. But yeah, again, as a whole, just just amazing, a momentous I mean, album. This album literally changed the course of music. You know, as I said again, this is why I chose this album as opposed to their first album. Yes, their first album has the iconic track "Black Sabbath" on it, but that's the only real metal track on the album. Even "Nativity in Black." is more heavy rock than metal. Um, But this album was the album that made them in America. Uh, Paranoid was their first really big hit single. Um, You know, it was a massively influential album in the development of music and especially heavy metal music. And that's why I chose it. And it it was, I I called it seminal at the start. And it really is, you know, it's one of the few albums (laughs) in uh, rock history that you can call seminal with no, and and not, you know, you can't argue with that. Nobody can say, no, it wasn't. It was, it really was. (laughs) Uh, As I said, like, even as someone who is not, even after this, a huge Black Sabbath fan like this, there's no arguing that with this album. You could hear it in this album. Exactly. Yeah. You know, lo- love it or hate it, the importance of this album on heavy can't metal be denied. cannot be denied. Can't be understated. Yeah. Cause sorry, can't be overstated. Right. Um, yeah, just, uh, so yeah, that is, that is paranoid. I love it, but now have even, you seen them? But even How that often aside, have you seen them just, in concert? Oh no, I've never seen Black Sabbath. Really? I've ne- no. Well, because, uh, I wasn't interested, as we said before, I wasn't interested, uh, in the Dio era of Black Sabbath. Um, and, Every time they've reunited with Ozzy, uh, it's been either a disaster or tickets have cost like $600 or something stupid sure. like that. Um, so, no, I've never seen... Any, I don't think I've even seen any of the members. I, I might have seen Geezer when Geezer had his side project, GZR, with uh, Burton Bell from Fear Factory back in the yep. 90s, which is actually really fucking good. That Some of their albums were great. Uh, proves like Geezer's, you know, chops as a songwriter. Um... I may have seen GZR on a festival bill uh, in the 90s, I think. I have a vague memory that I may have seen them at the Milton Keynes Bowl or something uh, at some point. But Sabbath themselves, no. I have unfortunately never seen live. Um, I saw them uh, at OzFest 2005. With uh, That was the year that Iron Maiden was on there. That There was a lot of stuff right, that happened right. with that Iron Maiden show on that one. But anyways, Iron Maiden was on the main stage. Uh, Shadows Fall, Black Label Society was on the main stage. And uh, the headliners were were Sabbath. Uh, second stage, Rob Zombie, Kill Switch Engage, As I Lay Dying, Mastodon, uh, Arch Enemy, The Black Dahlia Murder, Soil Work, Trivium. Like, cr- incredible second wow, stage that yeah. year. Um and Rob Zombie closed the second stage that year, I of believe. Of course, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the songs they played from this album, they played War Pigs, they played Fairies Wear Boots, they played Iron Man, they played Paranoid, and then they played a medley with uh, Symptom of the Universe, Sweet Leaf, and Electric Funeral kind of together. Oh, uh, right, right. Uh, 
So yeah, and I may have seen them one more time on Ozfest because they alternated every year, where Ozzy would headline one year and and then Black Sabbath would headline. They did that for a few years, but I but that was the one as I went back because I knew I saw Maiden at Ozfest that I realized that I I definitely saw them live. I'm amazed that they played Fairies Wear Boots live. Uh, yeah, they played one, two, three, four, five. The medley, eight, nine, eleven, and two songs on the encore. So they played like thirteen or fourteen songs. Right. I I'm a, I wonder if that's because Ozzy wrote the lyrics to this one. I wonder if that was a kind of, you know, part of his conditions of re, reforming. <laughs> was, huh, I wonder. You know, you, well, you never know, do you? It's the sort of thing... Let's not forget, Black Sabbath famously, during the uh, late 80s and early 90s, were at a stage where each of the members had a separate manager. And that was part of their problems, part of their issues, was that they would only communicate with each other through their managers and the four band members had four managers i mean did you did you, you know that you it was sharon <laughs> that suggested dio no i did not yes. wow it was before she was married because ozzy was married to i think her, her name was ethel before but the, the, whoever his previous wife was that that was uh sharon suggested uh dio to replace ozzy when wow. he when he was like go from the band um yeah overall still to me my favorite era of Black Sabbath is the Dio years, and I went back and listened to uh, the Heaven and Hell record that they made with the with that Sabbath lineup called The Devil You Know from like 2011 or something like that, uh, and really, really still like it. So, but this was I'm glad we did this album because it is an album that I should have a better familiarity with because of how important it is, and and so it was totally worth going back and. Uh, and spending some a good amount of time with it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, obviously I agree, but I'm glad that you did get something out of it as well, because I know, as I say, I know that you're not a huge Sabbath, or Aussie-era Sabbath fan. So, no, but it's, uh, it's fascinating from just a, almost like an academic standpoint, you know what I mean? To hear yeah. that, that, that genre fighting to be born throughout yeah. this album. It's really, <laughs> it's really kind of awesome. It really is. All right, so uh, before we get to homework, um, just I'll just run through uh, the, the usual stuff again. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, remember, if you enjoy the show, please do spread the word. Rate us on iTunes. I know I always say it. It really does help. Um, although, have you seen that they've changed podcasts now? It's no longer iTunes podcasts. It's now called Apple Podcasts. Really? So, yeah. Yeah, there's talk that maybe iTunes might be going, the iTunes brand at least might be going the way of the dodo. So, but anyway, find us on the podcast directory and yep. please give us a review. Uh, it really does help. And of and course... We're also on the Google Play Store uh, oh, for yes. those of you who are Android users, so you can go on there and rate us as well. Yes, yes, yes. Do you know, I should add that to my uh, notes so that I remember to say that myself because I always forget. Um, and of course, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. Uh, if you want to get in touch, go to thrash it out. Well, I'll start that again. If you want to get in touch, go to thrash it out podcast.com for links to email and Twitter. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. We would love to see you there and chat with you. So, Professor Brian, what is our homework for next week? Well, boy, this oh, was shouldn't say a, next week, next episode. <laughs> this was a tough one because there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, places we could go this season, and I, I think what we're what we're kind of settling into is you have already stated what your theme for this season is: is you you want to talk about albums that had a that were important 
you know, in terms of the overall landscape or, or had a, a major impact on, yeah. on, on sort of the heavy metal scene. We started with Judas Priest. We, uh, we just hit Black Sabbath. I know a lot of people want us to go Maiden right now, uh, but what I wanted to do was, because I was planning on doing it at some point this season anyways, is I wanted to stick with Ozzy. And I want to do the 1980 album Blizzard of Oz. Oh, wow. Which is her, his first solo album after he left Black Sabbath and features the amazing Randy Rhodes. Um, this is a fascinating album. And as you go, so we're going to talk about on this album, we're going to talk about the nine uh, songs on the original release because there's several versions of this album that have come out over the years. But the original version had nine songs on it. There was a re-release in 2002, and whatever version you pick up, do not pick up that one. Because what happened in 2002 was they actually reissued the album with Bob Daisley's bass and Lee Kerslake's uh, drums done over by Rob Trujillo, who was his Ozzy's bass player at the time, and um, Mike Borden, who you might know from uh, Faith No More, but he at the time was drumming for Ozzy. And so when they released this album as a reissue in 2002, they took the original tracks out of it and redid the drums and the bass. Um, and that was one of those many politic things that happened with Ozzy and Sharon and and former bandmates and stuff like that. There's there's such a long history with that stuff. However, wow. um, there was a... So there's the original 1980 uh, edition. There was a 1995 uh, remastered edition that still had the original uh, tracks on it. And then there was an edition that came out in 2011, which is an expanded edition, which has which reinstituted the original tracks on the album. And so you're safe with that one. That one has a couple of extra tunes, and we'll mention them. Uh, it actually has 12 songs on it, but we're going to do the original nine. So if you have the original on vinyl, whatever, if you uh, picked up the original when it first came out on CD, if you grab the the 90s uh, issue then you'll have those songs. And if you grab the new one, which I think is probably the one like on Amazon and stuff like that is the expanded edition. It's called the 2011 one that has the original tracks on it as well. So really it's just the, it's the 2002 uh, reissue that you want to avoid that has the tracks done over. But yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's where Ozzy went after black Sabbath. So I think it's an interesting, and I was going to do an Ozzy album anyways. And my initial thought was it was going to be no rest for the wicked with Zach Wilde. Oh, right. um, but we'll probably do a Black Label Society album at some point, and then we'll get our Zach Wild in, so right. that won't be a problem. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so uh, so that's where we're going to go with this. All right, uh, and just uh, talking about all the different versions of the albums, I just looked on Wikipedia, and if you go to the Blizzard of Oz page on Wikipedia, it actually has the track listing of the original, uh, the original nine tracks of the original release, uh, like in order and everything. So if you're if you're not sure what you have, if you're looking on Spotify or Apple Music, and you know you can't make head nor tail of which version you've got, at least you'll know which tracks to look for <laughs> right the newest or, one being the, order the, to play them in <laughs> uh the cool thing about the 2011 expanded version is it does have sort of a randy Rhodes outtake solo so if you're if you were a huge fan of randy Rhodes, like it does have um it and it has a, a sort of a remix of goodbye to romance uh the extra track from 2002 was the you looking at me looking at you which was uh put out again when the reissue came out in 2002 but the the original has nine songs the 2011 one has 12 and two of them are really kind of bonus uh extra features sort of things so right um, so yeah so that that is our homework 
All right. So, Blizzard of Oz by Ozzy Osbourne. Um, yeah, and uh, we will see you all next time. Look forward to talking about that. Take care.